It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast, episode 117. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. The J, are you alive over there, brother? I am barely standing, hate you, but don't get me wrong. Your boy, the J, is pushing through. And we'll get into kind of what we're referencing, of course, as we move forward. But for the opening promo that we do, and specifically the J starts out with from week in to week out on the What's Real podcast, the 117 is no different on, on the dub R question mark. The J is pumped, and I'm returning with the striation and pulsation nation. And we'll get to that even more. But your boy, as bruised, battered, you even mentioned it uh, pre-show bullshitting. The shrapnel is in the Jays' shoulders. <laughs> I'm hurting, hey, Ed. I'm crawling past the finish line to record this week. But your boy is here, and your boy is pumped. Let's do it. And we have a really loaded up show for you guys this week. Uh, of course, as the season is in full swing over on Shutter, we're heading down once again to the last drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs and Darcy the Mail Girl. Uh, we have a brand new double feature from last week, so we're going to check out from 1960, Mario Bava's classic Black Sunday and a trauma release from 1990, uh, kind of a unique one too, that we're talking Death by Temptation. Also, we're going to talk some wrestling this week as we are going to look at the WWE's WrestleMania Backlash pay-per-view with a full review there. Uh, the movies that made us It's Your Boys Week, I went with The Warriors from 1979. We're going to be talking some goofs and much, much more. So the J, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, this one really feels full circle here, the J, because we were talking about this stuff a year, maybe two years ago on the podcast, but uh, it looks like the war between Nike and StockX is booming right now. If you guys aren't familiar, you all know who Nike is. StockX is a website essentially where you can buy shoes uh, through a secondary market. Uh, if you're not familiar, sneakers are big business now. Uh, whenever a shoe sells out, the only place you can really get it is are places like eBay, Goat, and of course, StockX. Uh, StockX has gotten a lot of flack through the years from, from sneakerheads, uh, rightfully so, um, because they do what they claim to be an authentication process. They try to keep fake shoes out of their business, which is understandable. But as me and the Jay have said on the show many times in many different conversations, that's kind of a weird area because the only people that can truly 100% authenticate the shoes are the companies that make them and they don't do that, okay? There's no reason for them to do that. It would basically be doing a service for these other companies if they did so. Uh, but the reason why I bring this up is because Nike escalates StockX feud says site is selling fake shoes. Uh, this comes to us directly uh, from uh, Bloomberg and uh, Nike Incorporated escalated its legal battle uh, with sneaker marketplace StockX saying it purchased four pairs of counterfeit shoes on the platform despite the company's promises that it, it, it you know, in all of its marking that they only sell uh, authentic footwear. 
Uh, the world's largest athletic wear maker asked a federal judge to let it add claims of counterfeiting and false advertising to the current trademark infringement lawsuit against StockX. It said it obtained the fake shoes, including a counterfeit Air Jordan 1 Retro High OG from the marketplace between December and January. Uh, so we're talking 21 into 2022. Uh, quote, those four pairs of counterfeit shoes were all purchased within a short two-month period on StockX platform. All had affixed to them StockX's verified authentic hang tag and all came with a paper receipt from StockX in the shoe box stating that the condition of the shoes is 100% authentic. This is according to Nike in a court filing uh, just yesterday. Um, Nike has sued StockX in February in federal court in Manhattan, accusing the marketplace of, quote, blatantly free riding, unquote, on Nike's trademarks and goodwill with a service called Vault NFTs. StockX argued that its NFTs aren't digital sneakers, but simply listings for the physical sneakers that are stored in its vault and can be traded by users. StockX said in a statement Wednesday that it takes customer protection extremely serious and has invested millions of dollars to fight the proliferation of counterfeit products that virtually every, every global marketplace faces today. Uh, this was also brought up on Twitter by uh, sneakerheads as well, saying that this could also be a way that Nike is shoehorning themselves into StockX's business where, uh, you know, they can essentially jump in and authenticate shoes, of course, for a fee, uh, which very well might be what's going on here. Um, and we've even brought this up on the show before, too. Those hang tags that they put on your shoes that authenticate them, uh, you can go on websites like AliExpress and things like that and buy those, too. So, it, you know, those are even being counterfeited at this point. Um, but the J, this is quite the mess. This is something that me and you essentially forecasted long ago. Um, it's kind of why I don't really use StockX a lot. And I know that you do, but you do very sparingly probably because of this reason. Um, it's frustrating, it's weird, and it's just another weird gray area for sneakerheads and shoes in a market that is absolutely on fire at all times. You're exactly right. And that's, we, we, like you said, we said at the outset of the creation of stock acts that, that it was going to a concept that was going to open a can of worms and and of course with its success and its evolution to where it is today where like we said that's why it's called stock x it, it's basically a stock market for sneakerheads you're right but yep. but there's many gray areas as we've been discussing and it, it's something that has a lot of holes and that is what's kind of being brought out here by nike because at the end of the day nike's not going to mess around they're, they're a global juggernaut for a reason. We always said that you're a billionaire for a reason. You're going to watch every penny, you know, and they're, they're not going to take too kindly to anybody messing with their business model. So that's why they're going back and forth with, with this situation. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's almost watching from, from our perspective, Hey Ed, like a feud between Bezos, the human dildo and Elon Musk or something. You know, talk yeah, about exactly. not not caring who wins or loses here because it's multi-million dollar things. And as we always say, the collateral damage is, of course, us, the, the sneakerheads that are middle class or upper middle class people working our butts off for, for our money that, that want to pay money for shoes because, you know, we look at it as an art and it's just something that we came up with. And, and then we're the ones that get screwed. Well, dude, it's funny because it, it, even with something like this, right? It's easily solvable, okay? 
And I'll, I, I can tell you right now, all they need to do to do to fix this is quit putting out limited shoes. Make them so people can get them. But we all know that Nike isn't in the business of selling shoes anymore. They're in the hype business. And this, to me, proves that wholeheartedly. Because let's be honest here. Like, they could fix this problem tomorrow, but they just refuse to and would rather uh, placate huge lawsuits. And again, I'm not standing up for StockX here. I have plenty of issues with what StockX does. Um, But they're putting the blame at StockX's feet for something they can easily fix. Um, I hate the way that things get like this, the J. We've talked about this uh, specifically, for example, with like video games and movies, right? Because there was a time where you bought a hard copy game or a movie, you know, on DVD, Blu-ray, VHS, what have you. There is inherent value in that item. And if you get a movie on Blu-ray, you watch it and you're like, you know what? I really didn't like that. At the very least, there is money that you can make off that. It's not just wasted money. But these companies, since going digital with a lot of stuff, like if you buy a movie through Apple, it doesn't belong to you. If you buy a video game that you download through the PlayStation Marketplace, it does not belong to you. You can no longer do anything with it when you're done playing it. Um, So that inherent value that you at least had on the back end is now gone. So it bothers me in a way when a company like Nike wants to limit their shoes, makes them very much wanted, and then gets mad at you for reselling them or gets mad at StockX for starting a business of resale because Nike essentially makes shit that is so limited that people will pay stupid amounts of money for them. And just kind of being the middleman in that situation, once I buy something, when is it actually mine? Yeah, that's where it's getting. Those are great points, hey Ed, because that's I, I see that all the time. And we we talked about that with our sneaker collections, and and we always joke, you know, with our significant others being like, you know, you're spending all this money on shoes, and it's like, well, in a lot of ways, it's an investment. It absolutely, which is wow. you know exactly reflective to exactly what stock X is because we take care of our shoes, so we can go on there and kind of see what the value of of our collection is, and you know, you could even input that into the stock X system. And see roughly, yes. you know, the value of your collection. So, you know, to, exactly to your point, th- there is a, a value to purchasing something as a sneakerhead, something that you want. But at the end of the day, if if push came to sh- shove, you can make some money back. And, and in a lot of cases, really good money. I mean, we know we always reference the biggest sneakerhead that we personally know, our good friend Hutch. I mean, his sneaker collection at this point is, is worth a, a great deal of money, you know, and, yep. and and that all goes into this as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, hey, Ed, with, with this situation with Nike and StockX and everything else, what goes up must come down. There, there's glass ceilings. We've, we talked about yeah. this when we when we talk about corporations and their, you know, their quest for being becoming trillionaires. And now, you know, we went from the, the day and age of billionaires into this new age of trillionaires and everything. Not everybody in every business is going to be a trillion dollar business and Sometimes, like you said, it's like Nike, you know, you're not going to have your cake and eat it too. Like people are going to find out varying ways to to get their hands on sneakers and it's not going to be all the time directly from Nike. That That's just what we're seeing here. Now, somebody else brought this up. I saw, I saw somebody bring this up on Twitter and I thought it was a really good point that I wanted to bring up here on the show. They said maybe Nike shouldn't be so concerned about what's going on in the secondary marketplace. What they need to be 
more concerned about is this. And dude, this is a great fucking point. I want to see what you think about this too. Why is it that let's say, uh, you know, hypothetically today when we do the show, you know, we're in May, right? So there's a, there's some amazing Jordan coming out on June 15th, okay? Uh, and everybody's going to want it. And oh my God, it's going to be so fucking rare. And it's the coolest one they've ever done. And, you know, you see shit for a while, like building this up. Why is it that in uh, maybe say like May 28th, I can go on StockX and buy a pair of those and get them before the release date? Good point. So people somewhere are stealing pairs out of these factories. Right, they're getting them from somewhere. And and dude, here's another thing that people don't realize. I believe we might've brought this up on the show at one time, but it's been so long ago, it's fine to rehash it even a little bit. These shoes are made in factories in China, okay? And not everybody has their own dedicated factory, okay? It's not like there's a Nike shoe factory over there, right? So Nike makes their shoes in this factory, and then there's a bootlegger that comes in to the same factory and makes bootleg Nikes. Now, let me ask you the question here, the Jay. Are they bootleg if they're being made in the same factory using the same materials and the same items that Nike's using? Not in my opinion. I mean, I know they're not uh, official in quotes. Yeah, that's a good word, endorsed or official, officially Nike. But you're talking the same people that work at the factory that make them for Nike are making them for the bootlegger. They're using the same exact materials. They're so like the skill level is the same. Everything else is the same, other than the like Nike doesn't endorse those, and they're technically illegal. But you're not really getting a lesser quality product. And the thing is, when those bootlegs go up, you don't have to get them on release day. Like I can go get a fucking pair of bread ones that haven't been out in a couple of years and I can get them right now for at least 15 to $20 less than what the shoes cost at retail from Nike. So like what, you know, this, what kind of fucking game is this? It's cause that's what it really comes down to at the end of the day. And dude, you know, this as well as I do, wear those bootleg shoes to the mall and I'll wear the same real Nike ones. And I guarantee you not a single person comes up to us and says, you got fake ones on and you got the real ones. On. No one cares, knows, or can even tell. Yeah, that's why this conversation is strictly for sneakerheads because anybody else that isn't into this stuff can, can just laugh about it. You know, like, oh, you guys, you know, you goofballs spending all this money on freaking shoes and, and look, you're all suckers insert, you know, from a certain perspective. And they're not wrong. So it's it's just you know we talk it, about it all the time, hey Ed. We we definitely feel like goofs sometimes, but at yeah. the end of the day, you're into what you're into, you know, and what makes yeah. you happy is what makes you happy. So I'm not going to sit here and be a a closeted sneakerhead. I'm going to be a proud sneakerhead. Fuck it. Yeah, you're going to see me wearing my shit. So that's just how it goes. But uh, dude, this is funny how this worked out. Another follow up here on the podcast this week, and this is a really good one. Uh, so this is according to e-wrestling news and it's been, you know, uh, promoted elsewhere as well. It appears as though we may not have seen the last of the dark side of the ring series. Uh, last week, vice TV issued a statement that said they were more committed to than ever to the franchise. Uh, vice released a 22 and 23 schedule and it did not mention any of the dark side of the ring franchises, which obviously include dark side of the ring, dark side of the nineties and dark side of football. Um, But the network tweeted out the following. They said, we've heard rumors flying about that uh, season four of Dark Side of the Ring 
Uh, we are committed as ever uh, to both the series and the broader Dark Side franchise. Evan and Jason are hard at work making more content that we know our fans of the series will love, so stay tuned. So that's actually great news to hear that they are moving on with that. Um, now, I was also thinking that this is a possibility too, because we I believe we talked about this last week on the show, where they were talking about uh, them doing a show about wrestling territories. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if they just intermingle the dark side of the ring with that. And then, like we said, because we named all the territories that they could use, and there are a lot of them, but maybe it's the dark side of, of the ring wrestling territory season where they talk about the different territories and, you know, maybe some of the, the oddball things that have gone in because believe me, there is a lot of that stuff out there too, but ultimately good news. And I'm happy to hear this for sure. Good news. And, and like you said, talking about it last week, we called it. Hey, I, I had mentioned that I didn't see the dark side of the ring ending just abruptly through, you know, internet rumor, like, like it, it seemed last week in certain ways, you know, from the initial report, I was like, nah, maybe, maybe they'll take a breather from it. Cause there was, you know, controversy might be too strong of a word, but lack of better one. You know, we talked about how Jim Ross and a, and a lot of the people, um, you know, the, the pundits that took part in dark side of the rings third season had some issues with with how they were portrayed and with some of their interviews not being you know in the appropriate context from they you know from how they saw themselves answering the questions during the production process as opposed to what came out in post with the finished product you know jim and jim ross of course was a huge part of all three of the first seasons of the dark side of the ring and, and said he was stepping away and then we did mention it was kind of weird though how he was <laughs> named to be like one of the first big people involved with the territory documentary that, that vice is putting out like you said with the rocks company seven bucks productions so there's something to all that but at the end of the day i didn't see this going away it was factually the most successful ratings uh that the vice tv station uh channel i should say has ever had the dark side of the ring series it spawned the spinoffs because of its success so i i didn't see them putting it to bed just like that and and even even if there was some sort of controversy or issue with jim ross and a few other people to, to in my opinion that's not enough to put the end to a series that was so prominent on the vice tv so uh this this wasn't huge surprise but at the end of the day as you mentioned there's huge fans of that and and as always for what's real podcast fodder i'm definitely happy to say that the you know dark side of the ring season four is is going to be coming um you know it might not be too soon but definitely down the road yeah and i mean we've covered all three seasons directly here on the show exactly um so that's and we haven't even been around for three full years so that just kind of shows you like as soon as they came out with that that was wholly on our radar uh being wrestling fans and, and being into wrestling for so long that was obviously something that we were going to check out so glad to hear it uh hope they get some cool stuff and i look forward to all the news that they have coming up as far as what they're planning on doing so uh i found this on twitter and I thought this was pretty interesting. As you guys know, we talk some football here on the show from time to time. And, of course, we mainly talk about our Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, our favorite team, both of us, without a question. This is a rah-rah podcast for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, but uh, Albert Breer uh, put this out. He said, looking at the full contract for Steelers quarterback Mitch Trubisky, found a pretty interesting trigger in it. If Trubisky hits 60% playtime in 2022, there will be a $1 million roster bonus due next March. If he hits 70% playtime, it's a $4 million bonus. Um, so they kind of broke it down. You know, it's specifically like he gets a $250,000 incentive for being uh, in the Pro Bowl. Um, he 
you know, this is all for next season for 2022. He has a $5.25 million signing bonus, a little over $1 million base salary. Uh, his base pay comes together at $6.285 million. Uh, if he plays the 60%, it goes to $1 million, one and a half for 70%, 80% is $2 million, 70%, and playoffs is 2.5%. And playoffs equals out to about $4 million. And of course, that goes up considerably uh, in 2023. But that, what I read right there, and the fact that they drafted Kenny Pickett, who we know is going to be 24 years old when the season starts, uh, I'd say that unless his play dictates otherwise, Kenny Pickett's probably going to be starting for the Steelers this year. Yeah, it kind of looks at it, doesn't it? Isn't this like a tell? Um, you know, off the bat, I, hey, I, 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 I do like the aspect of these incentives being put into sports contracts because it, it just goes into motivating players, uh, which, yeah. you know, obviously is is the reasoning for it. But I do think it is a cool thing. Like when you see it on paper like this, you know, Pro, be- Pro Bowl incentive, 250000 I mean, who in their right mind thinks the quarterback Mitch Trubisky for the Steelers starting for them for the first year <laughs> after some time off is going to make the Pro Bowl? But you Dude, never know. Especially- well, dude, look at all the quarterbacks in the AFC. Right, we talked about that. Life on it. Yeah, just the AFC West, like the quarterback division alone. But but yeah, yeah not, nonetheless, it, it is cool to see like the incentives that can really motivate uh, you know certain players to to try to you know hit these milestones. Um, you know, it helps because in the end, it helps the team not only themselves uh, with with the money aspect of it. But like like you're alluding to, hey, Ed, this is definitely kind of a tell at maybe how Steelers management is kind of looking at the 2022 season with drafting Kenny Pickett. Yeah, I don't think that, you know, because they went out and they drafted Pickett, who is the most pro-ready quarterback in the draft. I I don't think too many people would argue with that. Um, Why wouldn't you start him? Like, unless Trubisky just looks like, holy shit, this dude is just killing it. Um, Then I don't know. You know what I mean? I mean... I don't feel so bad drafting Kenny Pickett. And if he's not the best quarterback, then you don't start him. You know, you, you have years to work with him. And I know he's already old in a rookie sense. But so what? You run with the hot hand. Fuck it. Like, sometimes that's your best bet. You know, watch the guys. Let Who passes the eye test? And that's who you go with. That's what I was going to mention. That makes this season's... Preseason, you know, the offseason and, and training camp specifically, very, very interesting because that's where this decision is going to really get made, of course. And, and like Albert Breer said, uh, the, the roster bonuses for next March are not guaranteed. So they essentially yep. would force the Steelers to make an early decision on Trubisky and allow him to hit the market early in free agency if he's not going to be on the team. So he, in his opinion, he says smart for both sides. And they did. Uh, this is a part of this as well. Um, I read that they did tell Mitchell Trubisky that if Pickett was there, they were going to take him before he signed, and he was fine with that. And like, so I'm like, and somebody somebody brought this up too. I think it was on Twitter that I saw. They were like, dude, the Steelers just before they even gave Mitch Trubisky a contract, they showed him more respect than the fucking Browns did Baker Mayfield. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Giving them a heads up on what they're doing and things. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. That's funny. And that's kind of what the Steelers do. Like, they don't really do that kind of shit with players. They're pretty straightforward about their plans and how they're going to handle things. And, you know, it's it's one of the big reasons why they're one of the most consistent franchises in the entire league. And, again, this gives Trubisky a whole lot of motivation to really go gangbusters in training camp and show the Steelers what he's capable of as a starter. 
Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to make the best for both of both of those players. So I think it's a good idea. And plus, besides that, I think the Steelers have a really good team. Uh, they're definitely better than they were last year. Oh, and for they sure. made the playoffs last year. So, you know, I think they're for right now where we're at in May. I'm really happy with where the team is at. So um, we'll have uh, to see how that I concur with that. Hey, I definitely concur. And how weird is this? We had a wrestling story, a football story. Now we have a football and a wrestling story. And it's story. a mess. <laughs> and it is a weird one. This is from NPR. Mississippi sues Brett Favre and three wrestlers over welfare misspending. Uh, the Mississippi Department of Human Services sued retired NFL quarterback Brett Favre and three former pro wrestlers, along with several other people and businesses, to try and recover millions of misspent welfare dollars that were intended to help some of the poorest people in the United States. The lawsuit says the defendants squandered more than $20 million in money from the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Anti-Poverty Program. The suit was filed less than two weeks after a mother and son who ran a nonprofit group and education company in Mississippi pleaded guilty to state criminal charges tied to the misspending. Nancy New and Zachary New agreed to testify against others and with the state auditor, Shad White, has called Mississippi's largest public corruption case in the past two decades. In early 2020, Nancy and Zachary New, former Mississippi Department of Human Services Director John Davis, and three other people were charged in state court with prosecutors saying welfare money had been misspent on items such as drug rehabilitation in Malibu, California, for fro former pro wrestler Brett DiBiase. DiBiase is a defendant in the lawsuit filed Monday in Hines Court Circuit Court as his father and brother, who were also pro wrestlers, meaning the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase and Ted DiBiase Jr. Uh, Ted DiBiase Sr., of course, known as the million-dollar man while wrestling. He is a Christian evangelist and motivational speaker, and he ran Heart of David Ministries Incorporated, which received $1.7 million in welfare grant money in 2017 and 18 for mentorship, marketing, and other services, according to the lawsuit. White last year demanded repayment of $77 million of misspent welfare funds from several people and groups, including $1.1 million paid to Brett Favre, who lives in Mississippi. Favre has not been charged with any criminal wrongdoing. White said Favre was paid for speeches, but did not show up. Favre has repaid the money, but White said in October that Favre still owed $228,000 in interest. In a Facebook post where he repaid the first 500000 Favre said he did not know the money he received came from the welfare funds. He also said his charity has provided millions of dollars to poor children in Mississippi and Wisconsin. Months ago, the auditor's office turned over demands for repayment of misspent welfare money to the Mississippi Attorney General's office for reinforcement. White said in a statement Monday that he knew the Attorney General's office eventually would file suit. I applaud the team filing this suit and, and am grateful the state is taking another step towards justice for taxpayers. So this is pretty much a gigantic mess. Um, also, it says in the article, too, that Brett DiBiase pleaded guilty in December 2020 to one count of making false statement. He said in court documents that he had submitted documents and received full payment for work he did not complete. He agreed to pay $48,000 in restitution, and his sentencing was deferred. I got to open Jesus. my take, hey, Ail, with a little inside joke for all of us wrestling fans, as the great Stan the Lariat Hansen would love calling these people out if they showed up like to a party or something. 
look, it's the news. The fucking Nancy and Zachary knew. Of course, it starts off with goofs, and that's where most things do. And and this comes into complete 100% greed. And you know how much I hate greed. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like, it's, again, another ironic thing. We even bring it up on the show when we talk about greed at times. And I always say, cue the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase's music. Money, 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 money. And now here here he is in in an article about this. Because at the end of the day, uh, this says it all, that the lawsuit says the defendants squandered more than $20 million in money for uh, that was supposed to be for a temporary assistance for needy family anti-poverty program. You know, like, come on, man. Like, people with greed. And, and, and one other funny thing, w- without fully looking into it, just starting off the research for the show with this article, Hey, Ed, because we have, you know, this, this kind of came into fruition a couple years ago. We had talked about it, you know, whenever it was, a year and a half ago, um, or, you know, back in 2020. And, and, and of course, the DiBiase family was involved. So, like, we brought it up and had some conversation, like, with the initial uh, story about this. So when you put in our podcast notes about like Brett DiBiase, and then I go to the article and it says Brett Favre, I had no clue he was involved in, uh, yeah. at it until this point. So like I like hurried up and dipped into the article. Like what the hell? Now Brett Favre's involved in this? Like that's unique. But you know, supposedly according to him, he didn't have knowledge and w- was confused and is willing to pay this money back. Uh, you know, I guess he attempted to, like you mentioned, reading off this, but um, you know, with the interest kind of thing, still owing that uh, to what that one man said. So, uh, but like we said. At the outset dude just a complete mess and at the end of the day it just comes down to a complete greed thing when you have pieces of shit like this spending millions of dollars of money that was supposed to go to a welfare program and these are people that should already have money they have money degree. yeah they said yeah, ted, like- ted debiasi senior the million dollar man that we were talking about his heart of david ministries receiving 1.7 million in, in grant money and him spending it on god knows what yeah and then you know brett Favre, like come on guys like you know, he's still in commercials for shit on television. Like, it's just, it never ends with people and stuff like this never surprises me. It just kind of surprises me when you find out the people that were involved in the first place. It's kind of weird. So, but we are almost here to our very first commercial break. But before we get there, now, at the beginning of the show, I asked the Jay if he was still standing here, if he was still alive. And the reason for that is that Jared has been working on his latest film project, Uh, over the course of the last week or so. People might not have realized this, but last week's show was recorded a little bit in advance. This week, we're doing it a little bit later. And a lot of that stuff kind of ties in together with how we've been doing the show here. But uh, I don't want to give too much away, and I don't know all the information that you want out there at the moment, the Jay. So uh, I'll turn it over to you. You've been working on a movie. How's it going? What can you tell us? Well, that's the thing, you know, I won't diatribe too much. Hey, Ed, because we've talked on the show. So for those that have been on the journey with us, you know, as we always say, we appreciate you. So I don't want to be long winded. Uh, The bottom line is for those that might be listening that don't know uh, your boy, the Jay here has been involved in independent filmmaking since uh, 2005 uh, after I got out of college Uh, for for some people also that don't know, because this is another aspect of my life that we discussed. I was uh, trained in professional wrestling. It was an indie wrestler for a brief period in the Pennsylvania area, specifically Pittsburgh area. And and when I went to Penn State at State College and had a tryout at OVW. And when that didn't pan out, uh, you know, we were just talking about that. Hey, Ed, I always tell everybody the dream became a reality as far as the closure of that. And I had taken it as far as I was going to take it. And I was very content with that. 
because when you get to OVW and you're looking at the WWE system in the face, you realize, man, I have to eat, sleep, breathe, and shit this industry. And I have too many hobbies, life interests. I wanted a family, all those varying things. So I was like, yeah, that, that's not going to be for me, but was proud to, to where I made it to. But then there was kind of a, a void left in my life. So uh, again, the long and the short of it is I fell into so independent you, filmmaking. So you so you joined the circus, right? And that yeah, didn't work out, and then you got into the after movie. after the lion taming gig gig didn't pan out. So and and you know the first the first film we made, of course, we had hours and hours upon hours of footage for our backyard wrestling league that was called Ultimate Championship Wrestling UCW. That Hey Ed was even a part of as the yes, the indeed. man that fears no man, Chris Carroll. And so for my first film project out of college and, and wanting to continue to to follow my artistic heart and creative endeavors, I was like, you know, coming up with all these scripts that were, they would have cost millions of dollars. You know, it's tough to come up with a concept that you can realistically do as an unknown, you know, I'll even say it, especially at that point, want to be fil filmmaker. So at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, we have eight plus hours of backyard wrestling footage. Like that's production. Like, you know, now I just have to do pre-production and, and post-production because those are the three stages of filmmaking, of course, is pre-production, production, and post-production to, to make a film. And I already had production, which to, you know, every stage is difficult, but production, of course, is one of the harder stages just to get the thing Boy, made. You're 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 being really nice when you call what we did with that backyard wrestling shit a production exactly <laughs> but it's us you know so but by any means again i could diatribe with this stuff i'm trying to keep it clean to explain this story real quick and, and get to the film at hand uh just the buildup of everything so uh you know i i was like you know we have all this footage so I'm going to get with uh, my friend Jordan, who had just started his production company and see if he can help me edit. So uh, again, long story short, we, we put together our first film that was basically a documentary all involving our backyard Dude. wrestling league from high school. It was a really long time ago, but I even remember sitting in with you guys during a bunch of editing sessions. That was like a regular thing. Like every week you would go there and do it. And I would stop by as much as I could through that whole process. So that was, you know, I was there like during the genesis of this shit for you. Exactly. I didn't even realize it at the time. Yeah, I brought back all my friends that took part for interviews. So we added that. And then, you know, we just kind of told the story of coming up with this backyard wrestling league. And, and anybody that, you know, it's such a niche thing, of course, but anybody that understands that world really liked the film. And, and as we do, you know, just throwing it on the show because we don't do it in abundance with 117 plus episodes uh, sitting here promoting our stuff. So when it gets brought up, you know, anybody listening that's interested, go to our, our YouTube channel or churchillpictures.com ucw the main documentary portion is available on churchillpictures.com and uh youtube so you can check it out just under ucw but but anyway that started the whole journey is the bottom line and that documentary led into my good friend damiano fusca reaching out to me as he was in california trying to get into hollywood as a as an artistic director and um you know a crew member he does grip work and lighting and things like that and he called me after he saw the UCW film because he was involved in it as well and really didn't know what to expect. And I sent him a copy out in LA and him and his brother watched it. And he called right away. They watched the whole thing because it is you know, one, one thing, you know, we talked yes, about well. that, Hey Ed, you know, that I might've done was make it a little more uh, palpable, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, it's like a two and a half hour main documentary portion. Well, you, you want it to be comprehensive. That's what it was. It was right. mainly for us. It wasn't exactly. Really and that's, I even, audience. I even told people when I was promoting it, 
it. Like, you know, you don't have to watch it all in one foul swoop. It's not really, you know, necessarily meant for that. I mean, it does have a beginning, middle and end, but nonetheless, very long film. And, and Damien and his brother just got the biggest kick out of it. And he was pretty impressed. You know, again, a lot of people just don't know what to expect. It could be a complete piece of shit. And then when you're, you know, you're actually entertained by it and think it's pretty good. You're like, holy shit. So he gave me a call and was, you know, we always tell the story. Like that's how our company Churchill Pictures started with one simple phone call after he watched that and was like, Jared, do you want to make a movie with me? You know? And I said, of course. So we put together what would be our first feature film that we always call our student film, just, you know, working with pretty much no budget, very little money from scratch, using all our friends and families and resources and all that sort of stuff in 2008. And we made deference, which led to another big feature film of years later in 2017, we completed the unsung and those two films deference and the unsung are actually on Amazon prime. So again, anybody with interest, churchillpictures.com has all the information or just search for deference or the unsung on Amazon prime, which all leads to the story at hand. Hey, Ed, cause I had never told that full story on the podcast. So I appreciate you giving me the time. Cause I just sure. wanted to kind of throw it out there since, since we we're at it. And it has all led to our latest project, which was going to be a streaming. We looked at it as a, a, a TV series for a streaming channel, you know, because everything needs so much content right now, it, even, even being kind of a lower level, which I'll fully admit, uh, independent production company, it gives you a chance because people need content. They need original content and you just never know what's going to hit. So I came up with a concept that I worked on with Dame. We, we work hand in hand on every concept with my love of professional wrestling. And it was kind of like my love letter to eighties professional wrestling. And so that is what this project was. And it, like any other of our other projects, and you know how the creative process works yourself, Head, there's been many changes and alterations and it went varying different directions. But ultimately we, we came to the fact that we just had to shoot basically what is a pilot episode of this 1980s pro wrestling extravaganza. And it is it all led up to the last few months of putting this together. Ask your boy, Hey Ed, his friend, the Jay here was a complete ball of stress. It is very difficult to put these things together on an independent level, but we have an amazing team. I have amazing support. And after a few months, we were able to get production ready. And as Hey Ed stated uh, last week, as we speak now, uh, we did finish production uh, in four days. You know, we we worked our balls off four days straight. I just have to thank my my team and my supporters. I thank you, Hey Ed, for being flexible with the podcast, still getting the dub our question out consistently, which is a great feat through all this. So so yeah, your boy the J is still feeling the repercussions of last week's end of the weekend four day um, production with the last day needing to fit in so many things and schedule wise literally not having any other time to do it. We just had to complete everything. The final day of shooting. And as you know, had your boy, the J pulled a complete all nighter from 11 in the morning, one day until almost uh, six something in the morning, the next day. But the bottom line is we pulled it off and finished production. And we are now in post as I can announce here on the show, the, the name of the project is based on the fictional league in the 1980s that we created. It's titled the national wrestling league. All right. So uh, now this is this is something here. So we're, we're going to get into a little bit of an interviewee type thing here for a second. But uh, give me a funny story from something that happened over the four days. I know you enough to know that something fucking happened there. 
So you don't have to use names or anything unless you want to, but give me one of the funnier things that happened during the shooting. Okay, yeah, I do have to change a few things for it because you know I don't want to, you know, like you mentioned, don't want to get anybody specifically in trouble or anything. But this this was hilarious, and that's a great call, Had. So as I mentioned, that final day of shooting at the location we were at, it, it was a an, an old gym, like an old school uh, gym, you know, like where, okay. where you lift weights, like where you know? people play. Oh, okay, I was I thought I didn't know if it was like that. Or yeah, that's like what I wanted to people play basketball. Differentiate. Like yep, old gotcha. old lifting gym, and so okay. we were shooting there all night. And we brought in um, our one female lead. Because again, it's a short thing. So the cast isn't as diverse as we might want or as the season might be. You know, like our, our only uh, African-American actor, shout out to our good friend Marcus Berkeley, um, had to, to bow out for some scheduling conflict. So we kind of had to rewrite some stuff there even. And uh, But we had our fe strong female lead come in. So she had uh, obviously a separate locker room. And the locker room happens to be upstairs. So she's okay. upstairs getting ready and I'm in the zone, you know, I'm acting, I'm producing. So, you know, for those that don't know that are just listening, the J specifically, I, I co-produce the film projects, you know, meaning I do pretty much anything that I can to, to make things happen. And I also act, I've, I've been acting since I was a kid and love it. So I'm usually one of the co-leads, uh, which I am in this case. So to say the least, I'm extremely busy and kind of in the zone. And I kind of overhear this actress saying some stuff about hearing noises and there's somebody else. And is there like an apartment above the gym or something? And I'm kind of like, you know, picking up on it as I'm going, you know, I'm like my peripheral and this story is all in hindsight, of course. So that's why I can throw those tidbits in there. So the long okay. and the short of it is it gets to a point where I kind of have some time and I go up to the actress and I'm like, say like, you know, what were you saying? Like, and she's like, well, I was in the locker room and I, I heard farts. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she, she and I, dude, I was dying because she was like, yeah, I just hear like, <clears throat> like she did the sound, you know? And this is like, like this hot, like, yeah, like, hot, like little cool actors, like just going into this story. I'm just like, what the fuck? So we, a couple more hours and scenes go, go by and I kind of go back to it. And she says, she's like, yeah, I was up there again. And I'm like hearing shit. And like, you know, one of our younger guys like makes a joke, like, oh, it's a, it's the ghost farter. So this is like, we call it the story of the ghost farter, you know? So, okay. so to end it, me and my buddy, John, we finally get a chance to kind of investigate. So we go up when, when say was downstairs, you know, she wasn't up using the locker room or whatever. So we go up there and, and nobody else is supposed to be there. So I open this door and there's a dude, this dude, Dave, I know was staying the night cause he like, wasn't feeling good. And the owner like gave him permission. So I'm okay. like, thanks for the heads up. You know, so this dude, Dave is in there without us knowing he's in there farting, you know, she's like freaked out. So there you go. I mean, that's one of many, but that's the one that stands out there. We were dying. Like here's this dude uh, up upstairs that we don't even know about. And she just heard him farting that gave him a way of his presence. And, and then the other funny part had, um, as you know, and I could tell our audience that the Jays character in, in the national wrestling league is the feature presentation, Johnny star. And he's my okay. personal homage to the macho man, Randy Savage. You know, he's not a, yep. a clone of him. I'm not doing an impersonation, but he's highly influenced by the macho man, Randy Savage. So when you're in wardrobe, and especially on a shoot like this, and, and you yourself uh, are yourself, you're not seeing yourself, and you just get used to it. So this dude, oh, yeah. Dave, he said, is that you, Jared, when I opened the door? And the way the light hit his eyes, I thought that he might be blind because he's like an old vet and stuff. Okay. So, and I'm like, yeah, it's me, Dave. It's me. Then I go downstairs and happen to see my, catch myself in the mirror with a sequent freaking headband on and glasses and i'm like no he's not blind at all i just don't look like jared i look like fucking macho man i didn't even think of it 
<laughs> so yeah, it was just hilarious, man. But yeah, the initial thing with like kind of picking up on like there's somebody else here from what she was saying. Then she's like, I just I heard somebody farting. And uh, yeah, there's always a story. Hey, Ed, filmmaking is always it's never not been an adventure on any of our projects. It's never just been like we went in and made the movie and that was that. It's it's always an adventure in, in varying ways. Okay, I got another one for you here, and then we'll take a take a break. But uh, obviously, you've worked on other movies before, and whenever you work on them and you're done, you're like, ah, I made this mistake, and I, you know, like you learn something from it, right? Uh, and you've been working on them for a while now, and like you even told me off the air, like how well you thought everything went. But like, give me the biggest lesson that you learned on this one, because nothing's perfect. Something always happens wrong. But like, what what is your biggest takeaway? Now, the movie's not done yet, but, you know, like from shooting and stuff, like what's the biggest lesson you took away from this shoot? Uh, once again, which, which is pretty much the lesson on each of these projects, especially the big ones. Uh, again, this is kind of more or less a short, uh, you know, the director's cut, if you will, that we plan on having for the premiere is going to be roughly around a half hour. And then, uh, you know, we do want to get it into short film festivals. So we'll have to go upon whatever the guidelines are for those. Those can be anywhere from, you know, five to 15 minutes. So we'll see about different cuts of it. So, but call it a half hour pilot episode, um, okay. but in, in low budget, but still very high price production value. And with that comes in constant preparation. And that's what I was telling you. And like I said, at the outset of bringing this up was that I was a ball of stress for months leading into this because it's getting everything. I mean, there's so many moving parts in filmmaking. You have, I always say, and you know this, hey, the layman's terms of putting it to somebody that knows nothing about film is saying, watch a movie. And at the end of the movie, when the credits come up, those credits go on for like two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, sometimes five minutes of just everybody that was involved in the movie. That puts into perspective what you're dealing with. So there's all these moving parts. It's like putting together this crazy erratic puzzle. So you have to be as prepared as possible, which we were. But to your point, the lesson learned was there were still things that we weren't fully prepared for and and didn't think out enough. And that, that kind of always comes back to be the lesson. Like, you know, we need to take more time to get this figured out and that figured out. And as with any puzzle building and putting together a puzzle and things there, you, you always find ways to, to solve the problems, you know, it's problem solving. So we did, you know, fortunately we got around some of the, some of the mistakes we made and things like that. But, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, that was the, the lesson again, you know, we, we missed a a couple, uh, scenes that we did need with like, uh, a couple of the main characters on this phone call. So we figured, we figured out a way with everything else we had to work around that. But, you know, it's things like that, you know, the, the big glaring mistakes that were made that, that you're like, yes, you know, moving forward, we want to learn from those. Yeah, and I, I got to agree with you on that, too. I think that's a nice lesson for any young filmmaker that might be listening to this. Uh, with, even with all the preparation you do, it's never going to be enough. Yeah. No matter what. So we, you better put the time and effort into it, because even when you do, it can still not be yeah, enough. Yeah, we, we said so, a, a weird, weird comparison from my head it was like a pro wrestler or a pro football player. You know you're going to get hurt in your career. You just know yep. it, but that's not going to stop you from doing it. And it's the same thing with producing film. You know there's going to be fires to put out, no matter what. Yep. You're not going to have a perfect it, experience. No, but from Scorsese to Kubrick, yes. you know the list goes on. Nothing is perfect, and your you know film Nothing. filmmaking is is you know, there's a lot of of putting out of proverbial fires. All right, man. So glad to hear about it. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this as the months go by here on the show. Anyways, we'll give some further updates and stuff. And obviously, eventually, whenever we can, we'll tell you guys where you can find it if you would like to check it out. 
So uh, thanks for that, the Jay. Glad to hear everything went good. But we are up against our very first commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to be down at the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob and, of course, Darcy, uh, because we have another double feature for the last drive-in. We're going to be talking Black Sunday from 1960 and Death by Temptation from 1990. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. What up, what up, what up, everybody? It's your boy, The J from the What's Real Podcast. Would you like to advertise on the What's Real Podcast? Hit us up today. We got easy, quick, cheap, and affordable rates, and we have some fun and can do some great ads for you and your bare ass. Hit us up today at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com to advertise on the show of shows today, the Pod Upon Pods. Join us next week for episode 118 of the What's Real Podcast where me and the Jay are going to head down to the last drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy for another mystery double feature. And of course, the month of May continues the original, unoriginal What's Real segment, The Movies That Made Us. Next week's pick for episode 118 is the Jay bringing Steven Spielberg into the mix with one of the classics of classics. It's Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is Timothy James with the What's Real Podcast, representing Goother Goose for the 118th episode of the show, where the guys talk about dolphins getting kinky with anacondas, Buster Rhymes and Jamie Foxx mussing people up, and disgusting morgue workers. All that and much more next week on episode 118 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is time to head on down to the last drive-in, of course, with Joe, Bob, and Darcy. And we have an awesome double feature for you this week uh, from 1960 Mario Bava's Black Sunday and, of course, 1990's Death by Temptation. We're going to start out here with Black Sunday. Um, a vengeful witch and her fiendish servant return from the grave and begin a bloody campaign to possess the body of the witch's beautiful look-alike descendant. Only the girl's brother and a handsome doctor stand in the way. Uh, Mario Bava, to me, is probably my favorite Italian filmmaker. Uh, there's a lot of horror guys that I do love, like Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci, uh, Diodato. I could go on and on. I love, Jared knows this about me, I love Italian horror. Um, Mario Bava, to me, is the king of this. Um, very interesting in the fact that Mario Bava worked in the film industry but would not direct uh, a movie being this one until he was 46 years old and he went on to become one of the most influential and important Italian horror filmmakers of all time. Uh, Black Sunday is a pretty iconic movie because it is the movie that turned actress Barbara Steele into an absolute horror icon. Uh, she might even have been the first scream queen. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, mentioned King Kong and stuff like that, which I get why they say that, but that's not exactly the same with Fay Ray as what Barbara Steele uh, became in this movie. Um, her face in the cover is iconic. Um, whenever she morphs in the movie with the the spikes on her face, that's an iconic look as well. Um, and dude, this is the one thing that I, and I've seen Black Sunday a bunch of times and I'm a big fan of it, but dude, the one thing that I really noticed watching it this time is like, 
you're going to be hard pressed to find a black and white movie shot as beautifully as this. That was is. one of my notes. Uh, hey, I got to shout that out. Dude, he, Mario Bava, and the thing that's funny about Mario Bava is, you know, he's known for using style and color and things like that in his movie. And it, it it's really impressive to see him work with black and white because he essentially has less to work with and it almost still doesn't matter because it's, I mean, this thing looks outstanding. Um, but I wanted to get your perspective on this to Jay. I know you didn't see Black Sunday before this, so... Hit me with some of your overall impressions of this, watching it for the first time. I got to say off the bat as well, dude, that's why I love The Last Drive-In. We gush over Joe, Bob, and Darcy and, and their program all the time, you know, quite obviously uh, covering every single episode we can here on the show. But it's this season in particular is when they throw up these gems that I happen to never have seen. As we talk about, hey, Ed and I are huge cinephiles. I'm a huge horror fan. But hey, Ed, with you loving the genre even a bit more than I have, I mean, you know how it is. You've seen pretty much everything. Not not everything, but it's tough to get you. You know, we'll we'll admit that here on the show on something that you haven't seen before. And so for the J, it's just always great. I love fresh watches, especially watching with with Joe Bob's inter, interludes as we always talk about. So this this was a treat. I'll say that from the door. Off the bat, like I shouted out, uh, just since you had brought it up, I had to. Uh, throw it out there with my you know, initial notes was just the beauty of, of how well shot this was. And yep. just Mario Bava as a director and, and seeing that and, you know, it, it was just un- unbelievably, you know, uh, amazing that a film, you know, from this far long ago, still to this day holds up with just the look of it, black and white or not, you know, and then the, the initial take as well. The other big thing I have to point out, which I've done before numerous times, but I have to because it's something that I really love. And it's it's something that transports you into that other world of film viewing. And that was the atmosphere of this film, you know, kind of reminded me it's, of. Oh, is it rich? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like its own time. take of of the universal stuff, kind of, you know, that kind of world in, it, in its yeah, own it way has to be. It has to be influenced by that to some degree because that stuff was a big hit in the 30s. So when you're making a movie in 1960 and you're making something with like witches and things like like that has to come into play. Even if you're just talking about the look of something like the Wolfman, it it like the environment and the atmosphere in that movie, it just translates to so exactly. much else. And it was done so well. Like wouldn't why wouldn't you take like those, those like scenes that? in the cemetery where like the actors are almost like silhouettes and the trees are silhouettes. Love it. It's just it looks so cool. Yeah, I mean, dude, that and uh, one thing too that I even love about this movie that's really cool is like they show you like the the horse and carriages. And right. Stuff that's and just, I, exactly. Yep. I mean, you feel like you're in the 1800s watching this movie. Like that's what's really neat about it, and the fact that it was done not with the biggest budget and stuff. Like I'm always extremely impressed with what Bava gets out of his movies, and this is a great example of that. Yeah, and, and again, a lot of uh, of cool facts for stuff that I didn't know about from Joe Bob. You know, he talked all about Barbara Steele and her career because, of course, I knew of Barbara Steele. But after Joe Bob was done with me, you know, uh, yeah. I, I knew yeah. a whole lot more. It was very impressive, and the same with with Mario Bava. You know, and 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 just how Barbara Steele was like very difficult 
during this process with him and like would refuse to show her cleavage. But then when they had a body double, she didn't like how it looked. So she would agreed to do it. And she's saying that like Bob is trying to force her to appear nude, which supposedly wasn't the case in, in this whole difficult experience. I always love, you know, talking about coming off a segment where I'm talking about uh, personally independent filmmaking. I love hearing the behind the scenes stuff uh, and, and especially coming from Joe Bob with all his knowledge. So that just added to this whole experience. Yeah, dude, and that's really one of the selling points of why I love The Last Drive-In so much because, as you mentioned, I know what I know about these movies, and Joe Bob is someone that I'm like, he's seen considerably more than I have, so that's definitely a voice I want to listen to, you know what I mean? Because it's once you get so deep into something, there's only so many people that are really going to know a On lot On that more same level, you. yeah. And, yeah, and I feel like he's definitely beyond me as, as far as that goes. Um, uh, something that I wanted to bring up about this movie, dude, that I think is pretty incredible when you think about it. So this is a movie from 1960. And I think it's safe to say that in a lot of places, especially Italy, religion is very, very strong. Okay. And this might not sound too extreme by today's standards, but again, I'm not talking about today's standards. I'm talking about 1960. So there is a thing in this movie. So whenever they find a witch, what they do is they take this bronze Satan mask and they smash it on their face with yeah. a hammer. And it's like it kills her. And the, the, the gimmick of it is, is once they do that, it seals the evil soul behind the mask for as long as it takes uh, or as long as the, the corpse lasts. And that's such an interesting concept and it is extremely out there for something in 1960 man so to just in this movie isn't inherently violent or gory or anything like that it's very atmospheric and it's it's more gothic horror than anything but to me in a gothic horror film that's really one of the most like just brutal things that i can ever imagine coming out of that type of horror yeah, exactly. Because like, like I was mentioning my own personal thoughts here on the What's Roll podcast, and we always have reference things pulled up and I have IMDb pulled up and the, you know, we always give uh, credit, but they didn't have a name on here, but they were basically saying the same thing. Because it's like I always preach to you, hey, Ed, there's only so much, you know, so many ways to put certain things as human beings that will understand, like, you know, you're you're seeing this the same way I am in a lot of ways, even though we're different people. And, and this True. person said like Bava who provides such a rich dreamlike technical depth that this film truly does transport viewers somewhere else in time. And, and look, that's exactly kind of what I was saying. You know, they talk about the dark corners, secret crypts and the fog and shadows. And, and like you mentioned a few times how atmospheric it is, but like, I think we're all in, in agreement here on, on what this movie brings. Again, Mario Bava not only directed this one, he helped write it, and he was also the cinematographer as well. And I wanted to bring this up anyway. This is why I was literally like applauding when Joe Bob did it. But you got to bring up Giorgio Giovannini, who is the production designer on this movie. Good call. Just he's solely responsible for the way everything we're talking everything about looks yeah. like to the horse and carriage, to the outfits, the mask of Satan, the the trees, and just the, the entire environment in this movie. It's extremely impressive. And for one person to be able to do something like that in 1960 in a film is just incredibly impressive that they were able to really do this kind of stuff. It's very difficult, and they knocked it out of the park on this one. 
I agree. Yeah, I talk about like the sit-up aspect of things when you're kind of just laying down. Uh, again, fresh watch for me, never seen it before. And, and I kind of sit up like pretty early on in the film. Like, dude, this is something more than I expected. You know, just, yeah. just from how it was looking and how it was getting me into it. And again, it kind of brought me back to my love of the universal horror films and those kind of settings. It was so awesome. And dude, it's also not, I wanted to bring this up to, uh, Giorgio Giovannini did production design for 21 movies and he did set decoration for 11 movies and he worked on a lot of Italian stuff but he also worked on Planet of the Vampires um, Eric the Conqueror um, he did art direction for a bunch of other stuff as well like he did the la he did art direction for Black Sabbath which is another uh, Mario Baba movie yep, which, I saw that way one. yes the band did take their name from that movie oh, yeah and and also The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. And it's it's very weird because The Last Man on Earth doesn't, you know, it's it, it doesn't feel like an inherently foreign movie. But when you watch it, I can see ex now with that knowing that I'm like, I can 100 percent see that because yeah. the the set design and stuff on that movie is pretty incredible, even for being something so low budget. But um, but yeah, Black Sabbath is a great film. Um, people might be surprised a little bit on my star rating for this one, but I'll explain that too as we get to it. Um, but I think it's a movie that's extremely important. It's a really, really well-known and iconic film for a reason. Uh, and of course, Bar Barbara Steele's a big part of that. Mario Baba is a huge part of that as well. Um, but uh, the J, there's some good ones for this one. So do you have a tagline for Black Sunday? We sure do. Hey, you know, it's the dub R question. Stare into these eyes. Discover deep within them the unspeakable, terrifying secret of Black Sunday. It will paralyze you with fright. I love that so much. It's a long one, too. Yeah, it's it long-winded, really but good. This one up. But as we do here on the show, we have a five-star rating scale. So the J for your first watch of Black Sunday, what are you giving this one? Nice, solid four. Hey, yeah, four stars from the J. Yeah, that's actually what I would give it to. And the thing is, a lot of people might be surprised that I don't have this one in the you know, the, the five-star area, so to speak. But the thing is, is Mario Baba would go on to make a lot of other stuff that I felt was pretty much better than this. So it's not a knock on Black Sunday as a movie. It's just when I think of Mario Baba, I think of a lot of his other stuff like Black, Sun or Black Sabbath, for example, which I think is an absolute utter classic. Um, but dude, Black Sunday is no joke. Definitely 100% worth your time. And, uh, you know, I definitely don't recommend watching a movie any more than I do than when Joe Bob shows it because it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, great, great call from Joe Bob, the team. So let's get on to the second film. We fast forward 30 years to 1990, directed by James Bond III. This is Death by Temptation. An evil succubus is preying on libidious black men in New York, and all that stands in her way is a minister in training, an aspiring actor, and a cop that specializes in cases involving the supernatural. Uh, of course, this movie stars Cynthia Bond as the temptress. Kadeem Hardison, uh, famous from A Different World and White Men Can't Jump, plays K. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is in the movie as well. And in my opinion, the MVP of this movie. And he's one of my favorite character actors of all time in the J. I don't even know if you know this or not. He was born and raised in Pittsburgh. Bill and I'm Nunn. Talking Bill Nunn. Yeah. He plays Dougie, obviously legendary as Radio Rahim in uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. But, um, but yeah, man, this one is also funny in a way, too, because uh, a buddy of ours, Russ, 
this is a movie that I remember his mom having on VHS for years. Uh, for some odd reason, his mom. Well, tell tell that story real quick. Thing. Like the fact that their basement was probably what recreated. You know, things get in your head in your youth, even if you realize it or not. And if you go to Hey Ed and the Jays' houses, like my my den in particular has what I call my quote unquote pop culture center, and it is very similar to Russ and Gus's basement, the house we grew up in with our friends. Yeah, our buddies had a finished basement in their house that. Had a couple arcade games at the time, but they had a bunch of shelves and a ton of VHS to the point It was like where, a video store. Like, like when I first started hanging out with them, I didn't know anybody except for maybe my uncle, who I've mentioned on the show a few times. But they had all the real stuff. They didn't just have like recorded versions of stuff. They had like the slip covers. VHS tape. Yes. Clamshells, the whole nine. And oddly enough, this was one of them. And the other one that we bring up, too, is Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, which is a Paul Morrissey movie, too. Uh, and they had the big clamshell for that one at the time. I'm sure there was probably the, even more stuff, but those are the two that really stuck. Yeah, I'll never forget that that cover with the, the stitches, you know, Andy yes. Warhol's Frankenstein, like, is burnt in my brain. And we, we didn't realize it at the time, but it said it was rated X. So naturally, all of us We couldn't wait porn. to watch it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we didn't realize that there was a difference between X and triple X uh, at that age. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, this one is interesting on, on a myriad of different levels. It's, it was put out by Trauma. Uh, and Joe Bob even mentioned it in his commentary. Lloyd Kaufman considers this one of the best films that Trauma ever released, which I think is kind of funny because it's definitely not, in my opinion. Um, it is a cool movie. And dude, I, I don't even know if you're familiar with this or not, but I'm sure some people listening to the show might get a kick out of this. But I, I put this up on Twitter when I was watching this live with Joe Bob and stuff. I was like, is Death by Temptation the first horror film to be deeply entrenched in New Jack Swing, which is a <laughs> style of like early 90s R&B and rap music? Because there's a lot of it in this. And I'm like, I can't really think of any other horror movie from that era that like has a shitload of New Jack Swing music in it, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. And it seems too that this is primarily a black made film, um, which for 1990s, really impressive. Like, you know, black actors, black production people. And, you know, it's not the best movie, but it's not because it's poorly made. They actually did really well with a lot of the stuff, kind of giving the movie more environment and, and uh, more atmosphere than I think they realized at the time. Yeah, you called it because I, I was definitely thoroughly entertained. The production value was high. Seeing all these guys that we've been through, including, of course, Samuel, was was great. But it definitely had its lacking moments. And there was times where it definitely felt like we always say, you know, because that's a, a three hour movie that's amazing. Feels like it was an hour or something, you know, and then the opposite for, for things that are bad. And not that this was that bad. I'm not saying that, but just to the point is that there was times where it was dragging, put it that way for me. Yeah. I'm just like, damn, man, this is still going, you know, but, but there was a lot of entertaining moments and some funny stuff. And, and like we said, the production value is still there. Uh, Cause as Joe Bob said, and, and again, we've been through the cast, but just to go back to the connection of uh, collaborators of, um, wow, why am I, Spike Lee. He, he talked oh, yeah, about, of course. you know, yeah. Yeah. And well, dude, and it's pretty amazing to think about this, but Bill Nunn played Radio Rahim in 1988-89. And Do the Right Thing was a movie that was very much lauded at the time. Yeah, of course. Claimed everything. And in 1990, he would make something like Death by Temptation. And 
His career was only going up at that point. But the reason why I bring that up is because Bill Nunn wasn't hard up for money to do this or anything like that. He was just what you considered a working actor. So he was working. He would do as much stuff yep. as he could. I'm all for that. And and dude, the thing is with this movie, and I think this is kind of where the the pitfall goes in this one. Uh, whenever you know Kadeem Hardison's on on screen, it's pretty good. You know, he's pretty decent. Uh, Bill Nunn carries the movie to me because his character has some of the best one-liners I've ever heard in anything. Like I was constantly Dude, laughing at this. Yeah, for, for those that don't know, he's just always trying to hit on chicks in the worst ways, and <laughs> it's just hilarious. Yeah. Like, and it's he like, says he's a doctor. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, dude, and then like the women will blow him off and be like, all right, bitch. Yeah, yeah, you. he's one of those dudes. Like, it's yeah. pretty fucking funny just in his delivery alone. But see, the problem with the movie, to me, and it's a big problem, is Cynthia Bond playing the temptress. Yeah, she's, she's uncharismatic. Uncharismatic. She does not hold up on screen to the other people. But there is one scene in this movie that I had to bring up, and I guarantee you, the Jay, you know where I'm going with this one. So there is a love scene in the movie with the succubus where there's a couple on a bed and they're getting into it. And it's like, you know, they have like the lacy, frilly shit all over the bed and everything. And in the background, there is, it just looks like a sheet or something on a wall, like kind of like an early 90s, like, you know, kind of interior design kind of thing. Until you realize that during the sex scene, there's some music playing. And then you see the thing light up blue. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's just lighting or whatever. And then you see a dude rise up from behind it playing a saxophone along with the song <laughs> that's playing. And dude, I was like, this is, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen by fault. Like it's- I was... Dude, it was so funny and good and just perfect and exactly what I wanted in that moment to kind of break up the awkward love scene. Yes. That I'm like, that, that was fucking brilliant. Whoever's idea that, that that was, they should get a fucking award for it. It was tremendous. It was the first thing that I can even say was any semblance of competition for the absolute classic saxophone player from lost boys that's that actor does conventions to this point so that was a that was pretty funny man i know a friend of mine that lives in sacramento california that last week went and saw tim capello play live there you go full circle (laughs) hails exactly but you know the thing is i agree with what you said this one does drag a bit um, it's not the most coherent movie, but it has charming things about it. Like I said, Bill Nunn's performance, Kadeem Hardison's pretty decent in it. Um, it does have a charm where maybe the technical aspects and things like that fall off a little bit or where the acting's not the best. But I will say this, it's, it has a 95-minute running time, and it feels considerably long. Yeah, that's and, a good call. When you when you make a movie in the 90-minute range and it doesn't kind of hit on all cylinders and stuff, that just means mistakes were made. So the movie is far from perfect, but I will say this. It is a great choice for The Last Drive-In. It completely fits the mold for me 100%. Once again, I do have to shout out Joe Bob's interludes were pretty good in this too. You know, a lot of fun facts. Very much. Yeah, really interesting. And of course, as, as we talk about the flow of the What's Real podcast and and how we go and our topics and everything and in the variety hours, we call it opening segment, we brought up a little bit of sneakerhead talk with the StockX Nike situation. Our boy Kay, played by Kadeem Ardenson, representing some Jordans oh, yeah. in this one. 
Black Cement Three, Cement Three, the fucking uh, the Fire Reds Three, Fire Reds. Yep. Always um, love seeing I that. Also, I also wanted to mention this too. I don't, I don't know how super familiar you are with this guy, but the producer on this movie is Nelson George, who is a really interesting black uh, author. And I've seen this guy as a talking head on a lot of stuff. Uh, for years, he's actually made a handful of documentaries. He's made, uh, he did Disdain the Mundane, uh, which is the 30 for 30, all about Walt Frazier and the New York okay. Knickerbockers, which, of course, you know, for me is very, very much massive. Um, but he he also wrote CB4 uh, with uh, Chris Rock and the movie Strictly Business with uh, Tommy Davidson. So, like, this dude was doing a he's lot doing of some shit. stuff in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. And also, too, Ernest Dickerson uh, is the cinematographer on this, which when you watch it, you you can tell, like, with the reds and all the... Like, that's Ernest Dickerson to a That's TV. his style. So, I, I, yeah, I completely saw that there. So, there was some really good up-and-coming talent on this movie. And oddly enough, and Joe Bob talked about it on here, James Bond III, who's an actor in this, he's also the director... But he, he showed up in Spike Lee's school days. He's also, uh, he plays a role in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. Um, but this is the only thing he ever directed, surprisingly enough, because I would have assumed that with Troma getting a release of this, and I remember seeing this in a video store, I'd be very surprised if Death by Temptation wasn't something that made at least a reasonable amount of money. Yeah, and him being ses- successful just for his freaking real name alone. I mean, how, how can you top James Bond the third is your real name? That's true. I mean, there's not too many names that would be as cool as that, regardless <laughs> yeah. of who you are. So, um, but yeah, uh, as far as Death by Temptation goes, though, the J hit us with a tagline for this one Death by Temptation. She's every man's dream and your worst nightmare. And I also found another one that's worse a terrifying tale of vampires and lust. So, once again, as we do here on the five star rating scale, Death by Temptation for me. Gets two and a half stars. Great minds. No joke. Two and a half is exactly what the Jay was going to shout out. So not too shabby. Of course, guys, don't forget to join us next week on the show where we will have another mystery double feature for you. Whatever Joe, Bob, and Darcy decide to play is what we are going to watch. As it drops on for you guys. actual Friday the 13th. Exactly. So I'm really looking forward to that just for that alone. So, And I know Joe, Bob, and them, they... They do a really good job when it comes to the important stuff, so I'm looking forward to see what they come up with. But we are up against another commercial break, and whenever we come back, me and the Jay are going to break down WWE's WrestleMania Backlash 2022. Uh, Stay tuned for that and much more. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. It was so much fun during the month of April doing the movies that made us, we decided to bring it in the month of May. So join us the entire month of May for the movies that made us. This is really my night, gonna take it right now Yeah, I'm feeling like a Mack truck going downhill The people on the sidelines screaming slow down But you can't kill my vibe I'm a head case and, and we're back And it is time to get into Wrestlemania Backlash 2022 This was the WWE's pay-per-view from May 8th, 2022 In Providence, Rhode Island from the Dunkin' Donuts Center uh, This show is essentially a six-match card um, so let's just start it out this way. The Jay, the opener was Cody Rhodes defeating Seth Rollins by pinfall in 20 minutes and 45 seconds. Decent match. 
Um, but I watched Raw uh, before I actually watched this match. And there was a matchup with Cody Rhodes taking on uh, Theory for the United States title. And Seth Rollins interfered in this one and cost him the match. Now, I had a feeling that this was going to continue to go on. But, like, I don't... like. The match was good, right? But like, as far as what's going on with it as a storyline and a feud, I just don't give a shit. Move on. It's they. This is what WWE does. They set up a feud. The match will be good, and then they just beat it into the ground to the point where you like, why are these two even feuding? It doesn't make any sense, and it's not good because of that. That's what we've been saying, man. It just it consistently goes back to that the storytelling and the creative. And I know that's like an old eye rolling, cliched thing to say, especially about the WWE product, because there's still aspects of AEW that has that, not the diatribe. But True. at the end of the yeah. day, you're exactly right. You know, you got two great workers. This was an awesome match. This was a great opener. Like it got me into the show. Cause as I always have to state with, especially with the WWE product, just catching things here and there weekly, not being as into it as I have been in my prime of WWE watching, I, I get in the mood for the pay-per-views, you know? And that's like, I kind of specifically purposefully do that a lot of the time, not sit myself through raw so that by the time a pay-per-view rolls up, even if it's going to be kind of goofy as we'll be through this one kind of was, uh, it gets me in the mood, you know, for a WWE show. And that's where I was, especially with this opener. But to your point, I completely agree. There was just no real, you know, resolve here. You know, the end was kind of goofy. They, they did the, uh, the cheat finish with the handful of tights and things, which what, you know, not anything I'm going to complain about, because uh, the match was solid, but to your point, with what we're, we're talking about with them moving on with this and just no, no real, you know, meat meat to it. Yep, between these two, that's exactly that's the problem. problem. Yeah, that, and this is something that they've said for years. Like, oh, these other companies, these guys have great matches, but there's no story behind them. Here we tell stories, and I'm like, well, what's the fucking story here? Because it just seems like you're doing shit because you. Got to throw everybody in a holding pattern at all fucking times. It's annoying. Yeah. So, and then it's downhill from there. We saw almost defeat Bobby Lashley by pinfall in eight minutes and 50 seconds in a match that I will hopefully never have to sit through again. I don't know why they continue this feud. I don't like almost. I think it sucks having Lashley lose to him. And I'm not even the biggest Bobby Lashley fan. But again, kind of leading into what we just said here. This is a feud going on that I don't care about, and I certainly don't care about the match result because it's not going to be any good. Hey, and you're just starting to see all his holes as, as far as, as his in-ring goes because the athleticism's not there. You know, it, it's one of those things that Vince McMahon sees. It's that freakish size, and I get it, but they, they completely went away, you know, already to kind of, kind of protecting him in ring and just letting him go off uh, again, kind of with M MVP as the mouthpiece, trying to help him out as far as that goes. But now he's just in the ring, which he needs to be, you know, they're kind of throwing him in the fire, but that's, that's my point to this match and where he's at on WrestleMania backlash against Lashley. You're just seeing the, the holes in his game and in, in the ring and how green he truly is. So they, they, I don't know, they have to protect him more or it, this is just going to fizzle out like a lot of these just giant guys that Vince tries to push do. Well, I just think it's going to fizzle out because there was a time period where wrestling was a live event business. So I understand the appeal of going to a show and seeing a human being that huge because you most likely have never seen anyone that big in your life. Right. Um, but it's a TV product now. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't translate well on television. We've said that before, even personally. Like one of the people that came to mind, like I knew he was a big guy, was Sid or Sid Justice or Sid Vicious. 
Um, but then when I saw him in person, it was like, holy fuck, is he big? Like it, but it didn't translate on television. You knew he was a big guy, but you didn't know how big he was. Um, and I, I just don't think that matters in today pro today's pro wrestling. It's a TV product. People want to see athleticism and good wrestling. Exactly. Period. That's or or people with charisma and things like that. That's kind of what I was going for. So well put, hey yo. Next up, we saw Edge defeat AJ Styles by submission in 16 minutes and 25 seconds. Uh, Damian Priest was banned from ringside. Um, this feels to me just like it did at WrestleMania. Um, although I wasn't looking forward to this match like I was the one at WrestleMania. Um, decent match. I don't like Edge now. I don't like the character. I don't like his stable. Um, it's just one of those things where they continued, they, they had the idea of continuing it from WrestleMania. And I knew after watching it at WrestleMania, I'm like, there's not an interesting story here whatsoever, the way that they're telling it. And I just don't care. And what that results in, again, is just like the opener. A pretty decent 16-minute match, but I don't care. I, I got to say this here, too. With the third straight WrestleMania rematch, I just do not like this WrestleMania. You know, this, this is the year they added WrestleMania to the title, WrestleMania Backlash. Previously, it was Backlash. I'm, I'm just kind of yep. over. Like, they rehash the mat matches enough. There, there's part of me. I mean, it's almost like, and I, I, I hate to be like this, but I don't care. It's my opinion. But it's almost like this would work for, for AEW, I feel. Because of the in ring, you know what I mean. Like they, oh, yeah, they yeah. they're given more yeah. freedom, so they can maybe up the ante. But the WWE style, I just have to say it, forcing these rehashed matches from WrestleMania just doesn't work for me. This being the third one, and, and this is where I saw this. I mean, obviously, I was looking forward to it because I didn't think that the chemistry that they had and the the inclusion of Damian Priest at WrestleMania, you know, kind of diluted uh, the great match they could have had. So it was one of those things where it's like, okay. They're giving them a second chance. You know, maybe if they're left alone, they could just really burn it up. And, and that wasn't the case. It was just too storyline driven. Damian Priest was banned from ringside, but of course he comes down. He's like pointing to the outside mat, like, I'm not at ringside. This is considered ringside. This is the line. And, and then Finn Balor runs down and just hits him in the ring anyway. So that just made no sense with any sort of psychology with what they were doing there. And then you have the big reveal, like you said, with the additional stable member and it ends up being Rhea Ripley. And and, and I don't I don't mind the, the three talent together, but the, the presentation, I, I don't yeah, like dude, it all. They're called Judgment Day? Yeah, it's the, the whole thing. You know, it's three good wrestlers that might be able to to do something in a different scenario than than how they're you know perceiving them currently with that name of a stable, just what they're doing with them currently. Not, well, not like, into dude, it. I can't, I can't wait for them to call, the, you know, build another stable and call them Survivor Series because, like, it's, it's a fucking name of a former pay-per-view, yeah, and it's right. a lazy, shitty name uh, on top of it. So, and dude, I don't like that either because this is a company that doesn't do um, intergender matches and stuff like that. So having, like, so what is, is Rhea like a glorified manager most of the time unless she's wrestling women? Which is goofy. I don't, I, dude, like, I've said this a million times, even on the show. Rhea Ripley is very, 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 very okay. And <laughs> yeah. that's about it. Yeah. That's it. I get that. So it is what it is, but, you know, kind of disappointing nonetheless. Uh, next up, we had Ronda Rousey defeat Charlotte Flair in an I Quit match for the WWE SmackDown Women's Championship in 16 minutes and 35 seconds. And dude, again, it's more of what I said from WrestleMania. Um, Ronda hasn't been here enough. 
Uh, it didn't feel like the build was done appropriately. So they took another month to have a rematch. And it felt, again, like Ronda's not here a lot. The story's not very interesting. The match wasn't bad, but it wasn't great either. So I'm like, and now that she's the fucking champion, I'm like, eh, this sucks. I, I wish she would have never came back. And, and even within WWE, I quit matches are typically like where they really do go balls out. And they did some good things here. This was entertaining. I did enjoy the match overall, but it, it wasn't what it, what it should have been for an I quit match, in my opinion. They, they should have yeah, kind of went further. With these two. That's what I mean. It should have been and the longer. way it was built up. I mean, the, Ronda took a power bomb into the barricade. That, that stood out. I had that note. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there was, again, there was some cool stuff that the finish was okay. You know, Charlotte, she, she is a pretty good heel. She gets under people's skin and that was, that's what a modern heel needs to do because we've talked about that in modern pro wrestling. It's very, very difficult to be a good heel it, nowadays. There's very few of those. Uh, that's why MJF kicks so much ass, but I feel like Charlotte's pretty good. I feel, feel like people legitimately don't good. like her, you know, and meanwhile, yeah. she's just playing a character. But all, all that considered, it, it led to her kind of saying, like, Happy Mother's Day, bringing the chair in, yep. and then Rousey catching her. So so that was cool. The finish was good. But like you said, I, I would say it was it was like above average on, on my take when it, it could have been a lot better and should have been a lot better. Well, if you remember during Ronda's first run in the company, everybody wanted to see her in Charlotte, and they didn't do it. That's what I mean. It's like, yeah, they like lost the timing. And now the, when they do the timing. it's like it, yeah, it's like this isn't good. It should have been better than this. And maybe it would have been if they would have did it in her first run where it seemed like she was actually motivated. So next up, we had Madcap Moss defeat Happy Corbin by pinfall in eight minutes and 40 seconds in a match I didn't care about, still don't care about, and will never care about. Yeah, I mean, Corbin hit a senton was my one note. Yeah, I just (laughs) like I thought Corbin had a lot of promise at one point, like a couple years ago. That's all out the window. And Vince loves this fucking madcap moss dude, and I don't see anything in him. It's just he's a replaceable goof. Yeah, I mean, you know, he has the the WWE style look. You could see that he's jacked, and you know, but the character is just god awful. I mean, what the hell is it? Just this wannabe comedian kind of goof, just laughing like. It's, like, just okay. not, it's just not good. No, a good wrestling gimmick is not that. No. I'll say that much. Uh, and in the main event, we saw in a six-man tag, the Bloodline team of Roman Reigns and the Usos defeated uh, Drew McIntyre and Randy Orton and Riddle by pinfall in 22 minutes and 20 seconds, which was easily the best match on the show. Um, I don't like Drew McIntyre wrestling with these dudes. I don't like him and Roman feuding whatsoever. Um, I thought the Usos were fucking awesome in this, by the way. Uh, which really they're, good. They're bar- Dude, they're the best team in the company. Let's just be fucking honest. It is what it is. They've been that for a while now. I think they deserve that. Um, I liked, like, I was kind of curious because I wasn't super, like, following along on TV to see what the matches were for this show. And whenever I saw the breakdown of the card, I really wasn't excited about too much. But when I saw this match, I'm like, ooh, that six-man got some potential. They normally don't do shit like that. So that's why I kind of like it. And, dude, they they all worked really hard. Everybody did good. Um, This is probably the most I've enjoyed Randy Orton in the ring in a really long time. I think he does a very good job. Um, But, man, McIntyre just bothers me. I don't like his gimmick. I just don't like what he is in the company, even though the dude can be really good. Um, But And then, too... I don't know if you saw any of this. Did you hear any of the shit about the the house show stuff 
Uh, oh yeah, with Roman Reigns, yeah, where he's saying yeah. like, "I'm just gonna go to," he, like he, he's thinking about doing the Hollywood thing. He's like alluding to, I feel. And dude, I've heard a report that for the next ten weeks he's gone. He's not doing he's anything. Gonna, even if they, even if they advertise him for something, he will not be there. Yeah, because that's I, what I've heard. I thought it was weird that they put the strap on him over Brock, and then the first uh, pay per view, he he, because he basically has both belts now. There's no title mm-hmm. belt. And mm-hmm. now, and then he was saying that, and, and it's like, you, you don't know if it's storyline or not, but it, it got the, you know, the typical social media rounds and people talking. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting because me and you mentioned, dude, Reigns is one of the biggest things that's barely keeping me interested in WWE right now. And if he's gone for, for a minute, like it, it doesn't seem like Brock's involved even like, man, like who's going to pick up the slack here, the, the way they're pushing, like you mentioned guys like, McIntyre and where AJ and Edge are and things. And, and you got Randy Orton in a tag team. That's a cool tag team, but I'm, I'm talking their main event picture is in scramble mode right now. Yeah, it dude, this, this show really hammered this home for me. This company is a fucking mess. It's not in a good place right now. The product is not very good. Even when you have guys delivering good matches, it still doesn't even fucking matter. That yeah, and that's much. what kills. Because I mean, it's we always say that. I, th- I feel it's like it's the same WWE review in a, in a nutshell, or at least like the theme of it between you and I, where it's like typically not the talent, and there's some good in ring stuff, but the style of WWE's creative and how they put the, the shows together and how they want their you know, talent to be perceived, you know, like I was saying, just, you know, the judgment day is a perfect example. There's three people that I could see working together, but in a completely different fucking gimmick than what they're doing. Yep. That's it in a nutshell, really. Yeah. I just, dude, the creative choices are really bad. Uh, The booking comes across is incredibly lazy, but it's probably not. It's just way too overthought. Like at this point, everything is extra scrutinized with them. And it's like, it's not resulting in anything better. It's just the same old shit. Here we go. Same old shit. Here we go. Same old shit. Like it's just goofy. And it's, it just doesn't, there feels like there's no urgency. Like years and years, like we talked about this with AEW. We said like years and years ago with WCW coming up, it really made Vince and company rise to the challenge to become better. And we thought that was going to happen with AEW. And it just seems they're so set in their ways. It's like, no, we're not doing that. You just either watch us or don't. I don't care. And I'm like, man, that's not a good situation to be in. It's not making the company any better. And frankly, it's not going to make guys want to stick around. Yeah, and that's with their contract. And that, that goes into with any sort of semblance of a threat that AEW might be. It's like you're definitely not seeing it with with Vince and, and how the WWE is is moving forward as it stands presently, you know, with us talking about it. It's just kind of like, you know, everybody was hoping, of course, what, what don't you do? We always talk about the rose-colored nostalgia glasses, but nonetheless, everybody hoping that with, with AEW's current presence that it might amp up the way that the WWE is. And, and what we're breaking down, which is my point to bringing this up, is that it, that hasn't happened at all. And, and I could kind of parlay into this because I did want to get your take on it. It's kind of like our wrestling section this week anyway. And we can get back to uh, some summarizing uh, WrestleMania backlash and our letter grades as we do. But did you catch the social media back and forth between Eric Bischoff and CM Punk recently? Yeah. And I kind of agree with Punk on that, to, you know, to a certain extent, because I feel like I thought he summed it up perfectly. He was like a lot of these bad faith 
old guys. Like, because it's like they already. Well, sum it, sum it up real quick hey, yo, for, for what we're talking but, about. So basically, Eric Bischoff, who for whatever reason recently has really been going on a tirade as far as AEW goes, just kind of saying that they're making a lot of the wrong business decisions and things like that. But he's another guy out here that has a podcast, okay? And these guys need content on a day-to-day basis, you know what I mean? Or a week-to-week basis and things. Like, Jim Cornette gets a ton of shit for that, too. So it's it's understandable, you know, like, why they need to it's, look at... It's not going to work they, they're gonna if, run out of if they love everything. Basically. I just wanted to throw that in there. That, hey, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to work week-to-week if they just love everything every week. Exactly. And... We all know how the fucking stuff turns out. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's generally just a pissing match about you don't, wrestling isn't any good. This isn't going to work. And every, and it's like, dude, these old guys are talking about a business that they don't work in. So they don't even know how the business works now and how much different it is. But CM Punk was pretty heavy handed and told Bischoff on Twitter, like, stop listening to these bad faith old guys who have who basically have already went through the business and made their money and now they're leeching off the business while they sleepwalk through their stupid fucking shows every week while everyone else in the business is the they're the people working in it they're the people drawing the ratings they're the people having the matches and stuff and it kind of gets to what we say with a lot of this stuff too if you hate it that much then just quit watching it we don't need yeah. to know your opinion on it just go away cuz you know he was comparing you know, the CM Punk's ratings, like, did it jump? And it's like, you can't compare ratings now to the 90s. It's so different. It's like, we talk, we talk about it yes. all the time with the way the world is now. It's just a completely different animal. So it's just a stupid moot ar- argument that just makes no sense. And, and the biggest criticism that I take out of this that Eric Bischoff was basically championing is the fact that they just look at uh, AEW as like the dream match company and that they – give into the social media audience and that the social media audience isn't even real. It's just all this, you know, bullshit and it's not even the real audience. And I get that side of the argument as well. Like there's certain aspects of it that I understand, but at the end of the day, like you said, Hey Ed, I, I think there's a lot of options for, for professional wrestlers to work right now. Like we talk about, there's so many different channels and different ways to consume content that I, I think it is, like you were saying, just to shut up and watch or don't, uh, bottom line. It's the healthiest the business has been in almost 20 years. Exactly. Whether you like it or not, it just is. What, like, I can sit here and shit all over the WWE's product, but people still watch them. They still They're on Fox. billions of dollars. Yeah. They're on Fox. They get, you know, they're they're still amongst decent ratings. People watch their shows. Peacock is happy apparently with them. People still so, say like, like not like, oh, are you going to watch pro- professional wrestling? A lot of people still say, are you going? Oh, you're watching that WWE stuff? Like you always talk yes. about the branding. Absolutely, that's just how it goes. But so. but and it's swaying just to go into that with, for example, I was talking to my my son's teacher, and he's like, you know, I, I know Jace likes wrestling, and some of the other kids like wrestling. You know, he's like, but you know, I have to kind of break them up sometimes if these guys are just talking about AEW, and, and that's my point to bring oh, that up. Okay. He like mentioned AEW specifically, that stood out to me, like, oh, you know, so you know, it, it's just all the the point of it, and I just thought that'd be an interesting um, thing to bring up, and that this was the the place wrapping up this week's wrestling talk. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that at you. Hey, yeah, with all the kind of back and forth between Punk and Bischoff going on. And keep, and you know, just to throw this out there too, for people who don't know this, Jared's son is eight years old and he's most likely talking amongst other eight year olds. And everybody likes to give off this perception. Like 
oh, little kids only like WWE. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. necessarily. So uh, I thought that was a great point. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, but as we do here for wrestling pay-per-views, we give them a letter grade. So the J, what's your grade for WrestleMania Backlash? WrestleMania Backlash 2022. Hey, uh, the J on the What's Real podcast is throwing at it a C plus letter grade. Yeah, I'm a- I'm going with a D on this one, even though the main event was good. I'm just really getting tired of these shows that just aren't very interesting at all. It's like this company's forgotten how to do pay-per-views or important shows to any degree. And I hate how when it comes to shows like this, they bring them down a level. Like if it was WrestleMania, if it was SummerSlam, it'd be up a level. And I'm like, that's bullshit. And that's why you have lackluster shows. It just is what it is. So... We are up against another quick commercial break, and whenever we come back, it is time for the movies that made us, specifically me, as we travel back to 1979 and take a look at Walter Hill's wonderful gang epic, The Warriors. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back with that and much more right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed for the What's Real Podcast for the International Wrestling Cartel. IWC presents Proving Ground Saturday, May 21st from Ross Straver Ice Gardens in Belvern in Pennsylvania. Get your tickets now at IWCWrestling.com for the show featuring Steel and ECW Originals, Sandman, Rhino, and Bill Alfonso. All that and much more Saturday, May 21st 2022 at the Ross Draper Ice Gardens for IWC, the International Wrestling Cartel's Proving Ground. And we're back, and it is that time once again for the movies that made us. This week, it is my choice, and I went back to 1979 to the Walter Hill classic, The Warriors. Prominent gang leader Cyrus calls a meeting of New York New York gangs to set aside their turf war and take over the city. At the meeting, a rival leader kills Cyrus, but a Coney Island gang called The Warriors is wrongly blamed for Cyrus's death. Before you know it, the cops and every gang in the city is hot on the warrior's trail. So basically what happens in the movie, after this happens, the uh, the warriors basically have to escape the Bronx and get back to Coney Island before anybody can get to them. And what you essentially have is one of the coolest Survive the Night movies that has ever been made. Uh, the Warriors has a pretty good cast as well. Michael Beck plays the leader Swan. James Remar shows up in this one. And who doesn't love when James Remar some, shows some up in Remar. anything? Hell yeah. Uh, David Patrick Kelly plays the Luther character, the main uh, villain. Uh, you know, there's, uh, David Harris is in this one. Deborah Van Valkenburg shows up in this as well. Uh, Lynn Thigpen, a, the DJ. A, yep, yep. Uh, who you might know if you were uh, familiar with Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. She was the same, the woman who basically played the same role on the show. Yep. Uh, oddly enough, Mercedes Rule shows up on this one in a very small role as a policewoman, but it's a very important role as she uh, arrests Raymar. the character. Yep. Uh, also, Erwin Keyes is a policeman in this movie who, who you will, might recognize from Friday the 13th. And funny enough, the J... Guess who one of the policemen is in the subway station? I can't recall offhand. Sonny Landon. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. Gotta love Sonny Landon in this one as well. 
very cool. And also, too, I, it says here that Robert Townsend is in this as one of the gang members, but I can't, you know, he's uncredited in the movie. Uh, obviously directed by Walter Hill, who's known for stuff like 48 Hours, uh, Last Man Standing, Brewster's Millions, Southern Comfort, Streets of Fire, and the very first R-rated movie I ever saw in the theater, Red, Red Heat, Heat, with Schwarzenegger and, and uh, Belushi. Um, but yeah, dude, this is a cult classic. Um, New York City is on display as a character in this one as well. There's been a few attempts to remake this. Um, and you know how I feel about this, the J. You can't remake this currently because New York isn't the same anymore. And it's it's one of the reasons why this movie is such an interesting piece uh, because of the prominent role that New York City directly plays in the movie because the subway system, everything comes into play. Subway stations, like the, the whole, this movie couldn't take place in anywhere except for New York because of that stuff. And I, I really like the movie because of that. And one of the coolest things about this movie is it creates a series of gangs, okay? And the gangs are all gimmicked, which is kind of neat. Uh, the one gang that is probably most famously known besides the warrior in the movie, the warriors in the movie is the baseball the Furies. Furious, yep. the, the gang of baseball players dressed up like baseball players with face paint and carrying baseball bats. And isn't it funny that the most well-known gang pretty much in the movie is the big, they're, they're the biggest set of wimps that, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that, that the warriors encounter the entire movie. Other than maybe the orphans. Well, yeah, they're not even on the radar <laughs> in the movie. And it's like, and it also uh, leads to one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Where like they're like, "Tell them you guys got to take off your colors, and you can walk through." And then they they like turn back the two dudes, and they're talking about what's going on. And he's like, "Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna turn around, and we're gonna march right through these lame fucks territory. Yeah, <laughs> these lame fucks." These lame fucks territory, man. I love it, dude. It's such a cool movie. It's such an amped up movie. It comes with style and abundance. It's really a one-of-a-kind type of movie where it's like you're never going to see anything else quite like The Warriors. I remember seeing this movie as a teenager for the first time, and I was completely fucking blown away by it. I didn't know what to expect, but, dude, I'll tell you what caught me. The first time I ever saw this, uh, the beginning was on. And it's like when that music's playing and they're showing the Wonder Wheel and Coney Island. And dude, this movie might have the greatest opening credit sequence of all time. Yeah, with all the gangs with the coming. music playing. And it's like, and they're, they're sh like the, the credits come at you and they, they keep showing like, it, it'll like show the Warriors like, so there's a big meeting up in the Bronx tonight. And then it cuts to like, the, the title's coming at you, but you're supposed to be the front of the subway train, so you're going down the track and shit. Yep. It's just really, really neat and creative and like really cool looking, and it always stuck out to me. And because of that, I was like, what is this? I got to watch this. And like I had no idea what I was in for, but I couldn't believe it. I was just utterly just shell-shocked by how cool the movie this was. Of course, my personal experience was with my boys, Hey, Ed and our buddy Squid, who, you know, growing up, we just would throw all kinds of stuff like this at each other. Like, you got to watch this if you haven't seen this and watching stuff together and renting things. And I remember you and Squid bringing this up and saying, dude, did you see the, you, you've never seen the Warriors, you know, like we're watching it right now. One of those things. And then of course, as, yeah, soon, as, as soon as I watched it with you guys, I was hooked. And then I took that too, because I was like in high school, I didn't see it till high school. 
And then I took that to college. Uh, one of my first roommates, shout out to my, my roommate Murph, my good friend from Boston. And, uh, you know, he was a big movie guy. And one of the first ones that I threw at him to see if he had seen it or not, of course, was The Warriors. And, and I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Hayad, but he watched it, wasn't big on it. And I was all pissed. Like, how can't you like The Warriors? Yeah. Because I was going to say, I don't know anybody that I've told about this movie that didn't absolutely fucking love it. Yeah, neither Murph. Shout him out. Other than Murph. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, other than Murph. But, dude, here's something uh, pretty interesting, um, you know, about this. So there's 22 gangs, okay? Uh, in and, and check this out. I'm going to give you, because I love you guys, so I'm going to give you this breakdown. So Van Cortland Park in New York City was the home of the Gramercy Riffs and the Van Cortland Rangers. Gun Hill Road in the Bronx, in the Pelham Bronx, was the turf of the Turnbull ACs. The Pelham Train Yard in the Bronx was the Moonrunners. Tremont West Bronx was the Orphans. Harlem Upper Manhattan were the Boppers. East Harlem and Upper Manhattan had the Hurricanes. Riverside Manhattan was the territory of the Baseball Furies. Hell's Kitchen West Manhattan were the Rogues. The Bowery in Manhattan was the home of the Lizzies and the Punks. The Lizzies, of course, are the female gang that tried to set up the Warriors in the movie. That made, dude, one of the best uh, scenes of all time is when they start shooting, and it's like in slow mo where the dude breaks the chair over the girl's head. Yeah, it's just that's such a good scene. Uh, Soho in Manhattan was the home of the Electric Eliminators and the Hi Hats. The Savage Huns, of course, are from Chinatown. The Jones Street Boys and the Sarsenas are from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. The Satan's Mothers were from Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. The Destroyers and the Warriors were both from Coney Island. Now, the Warriors really were the only gang from Coney Island. The Destroyers were the original incarnation of the gang that whenever they split up, it started the Warriors. Uh, and then there's the Panzers, the Gladiators, and the Boyle Avenue Runners, and their turfs are unknown, okay? And in the world of the Warriors, there's only two things. There's this movie... And then there's the Rockstar video game that came out years later, which is an amazing, that was awesome. amazing game. Oh, my God, that we go nuts. But there's even some more ga uh, gangs, too, involved here. There's the Alley Cats. There's the Amsterdam All-Stars, the Big Trains, the Black Hands, the Blackjacks, the Charlemagnes, the Colt 45s, the Dealers, the Delaney Boys, the Dingoes, the E Street Shufflers, the Easy Aces, the 8th Avenue Apaches, the Fastballs. Um, the Fifth Street Bombers, the Fillmores, the Fire Tasters, the Five Points, the Gerards, the Gohards, the Gunhill Dancers, the High Rollers, the Homeboys, the Hoplites, the Hotwitzers, the Huts, the Imps, the Jesters, the Judas Bunch, the Jupiters, the Knockdowns, the Knuckles, the Locos, the, Mag the Magicians, uh, the Maasai, the Meat Packers. Uh, the Mongols, the Napoleons, the Nickel Stakes, the Knight Riders, the Ninth Avenue Razors, the Phillies, the Plainsmen, the Queensbridge Mutilators, the Real Boys, the Red Hook Shooters, the Roadmasters, the Romans, the Runaways, the Saratogas, the Shanghai Sultans, the Southern Cross, the Speed Wagons, the Steve Drone, the Steve Doors, the Stilettos, the Stonebreakers, the Terriers, the Turks, the West Side Lords, the Whispers Wizards, the Xenophones, the xylophones, the yo-yos, the young bloods, the zodiacs, and the zulus. Damn, you didn't fade. So there's a yeah. shitload. And dude, here's another thing that a lot of people don't realize: there are a couple gangs from the movie. They're actually based on real gangs. Okay, 
Um, the Satan's mothers, that one's not hard to figure out. They're basically a take on the Hell's Angels. So, and there's a lot of these other gangs. There, New York City was rife with street gangs uh, in the late 70s. And that's kind of where Walter Hill got this idea to come up with. And even though the movie is very grimy and gritty and stuff, it wasn't like an insanely violent New York movie. Um, but the thing that I should mention here too, this me putting this movie in the movies that made us, I'm only referring to the theatrical version. Walter Hill has a director's cut of this that's been released since Blu-ray became a format. And it is one of the biggest atrocities I've ever seen. He adds in a bunch of uh, comic book panels and stuff into the movie that really takes you out of it and kind of destroys the entire vibe of the movie. And it's one of the biggest missteps I've ever seen when it comes to something like that. And I usually push for the director's cut in more cases than not. Yeah, we talked about that off air because, you know, both of us agree on that as, as well. Like, it's just... Not a good version at all of, of something that we look at as a personal classic, not just a call classic. I mean, again, we that's why we're celebrating this. It was a movie that made us, you know, your choice, but you know, the Jay feels the same way. And it's just just not not the right take. I mean, hey, it's the director, but you know, you don't have to agree with any everybody. And even with the great Walter Hill, that was just the, the wrong take in both of our opinions. And you know, in comparison to something like like I said to you when we brought it up, like Ridley Scott's director's cuts, for example, I'm I'm a big fan of for a lot of them. You know, shouting out like Legend and, and Alien. But nonetheless, you know, we're, we're definitely looking at the original, and that's definitely a great point to bring up here, Hale. Yeah, it's. Dude, there's a lot of cool stuff in this, too. Um, like, there's a scene where they're on the subway train where, like, the kids came from, like, prom or something like that, and they kind of see them and, and immediately shut their mouth. So it's like they even felt the need to put a scene in here about the class divide in New York City at the time, uh, which is, it's it's a really subtle scene, and it's kind of just placed in there when, you know, the warriors are just making their escape through the subway. But it's it's really one of the more memorable scenes in the movie because it's like, even though they're making it through the night and they're doing stuff they shouldn't be able to do, it's like there's always that constant reminder. It's like, you know, you guys are just pieces of shit from Coney Island, right? And it's like there's even two, uh, there's a really cool scene towards the end of the movie when they get off the train and they've been fighting all night to get here. And they get off the train and they're like, really? This is what we've been fighting all night to get fucking back to? And it's, it's really an important line in the movie and it really kind of like negates what they've done in a way, not in a bad way for you, the viewer, but it's like to them, like they're kind of just telling you like, dude, we kind of live like this hopeless, like never ending bullshit life. That's probably not going to end up good for any of us. And even through the course of the escape for the night, like guys have died that like we're friends with and like, we're supposed to be happy to be here. Yeah. Is it worth all this? Yeah, exactly. And of course there is, you know, the, the really cool, you know, like the radio breaks in the movie and stuff like that and, and all the different sets and stuff that they run through. It's really an impressive production that they were able to do this. And I've even heard Walter Hill talk about just how challenging it was at the time because they were filming in some pretty rough areas in New York at the time and nobody gave a fuck. Like nobody was like, there's a movie here. You guys can't be out. Like, no, that's not how things worked back then. So they had to do a lot of weird things to actually get stuff filmed, like paying gangs for protection to be in the neighborhood and stuff like that. And they'd let them shoot the movie there. 
Um, so the fact that this even exists is pretty much a miracle, let alone something that is such a fucking cult classic. Another thing I would mention, hey, yeah, because you mentioned the great David Patrick Kelly, but a great heel in Luther, who basically is the one that sets up the Warriors, of course, and is, you know, playing it throughout. And one of the standout scenes, you know, not not just talking about the classic scene at the end with the the pop bottles and the clanking and the Warriors come out and play, eh? but the scene where they're at the candy store with the candy girl and he's on the phone, you know, like getting information or whatever. And he gets off the phone and she's like, are, are you going to pay me the, what you owe me? And he's like, for what? For what? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's always a standout little scene. And, and Luther's just such a great character and a, and a great heel. And, and, and just one other mention while I'm at it, hey, you know, with, things that stand out in this because you kind of uh, ran by it, but I, I would have to say it too, because you were talking about it with the opening credits, but of course the, the soundtrack throughout just makes work. It's fantastic. You know, it just makes it. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously Joe Walsh is in the city plays at the end credits, which is a really good yeah, song. Good call and it too. really, really works well there. Um, every once in a while, whenever we do this on the show, I bring you guys over to the Letterboxd app because I find some good stuff here that I want to read on the show. So Isrid, they had a, a review where it said, how I see myself, a warrior, how others see me, a baseball fury, what I really am, an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another dude, uh, this is from Fran, it says, sometimes you're, you're an overalls and roller skates guy, and sometimes you're a fucking Lizzie. That's great. <laughs> another one on here, where's it at? A really great promotion for the virtues of public transportation. <laughs> awesome. And of course, you can't bring up the Warriors without saying the line at least once. Can you dig it? Yeah, classic. So, of course, that's an absolute classic. Without a doubt, The Warriors is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, there's really nothing like it. It's an absolutely special piece of cinema that I, you know, it's, it's one of those movies, the J2, I can watch it every oh, day. Oh, for sure. And I yeah, never get yeah, I said, you just doing, doing the show and this segment gave me an excuse to throw it on again. It was a beautiful Pittsburgh day. I have an out, outside TV. So I was like, dude, I'm just going to watch the Warriors outside. It was a great experience. Always is. Uh, one last question is we're wrap, wrapping it up. Hey, Ed, to you, did you have, happen to ever catch the Warriors uh, last subway ride home? That they did a few years ago. Oh they, yeah, that was dude, pretty that cool. Was the, I just wanted to bring yeah, that up. Yeah, that was really cool. There, they were getting. Dude, this is something that I kind of and I've talked about this on the show before, going to conventions and things like that. And I haven't gone in a few years. It's kind of gotten a little bit crazy with things. But um, there have been a handful of warrior reunions, and that's one that I I'm like I yeah, I we both of. would have to try to hit that man. I have like a French door panel poster, which is a really odd size, but it's really cool. And I would love to get that signed by as many of them as I possibly could. Because like I said, this movie to me is one of my favorites and it's one of the greatest movies ever made. So like I would definitely be down for something like that. I'd love to meet as many people as I could, especially if James Remar was there. We, we talked about the Pop Culture Center, just thinking out loud on the show, how cool would it be if you had a replica vest signed by as many of them as you can, then you could frame it. You know, I've always wanted one that'd of those, be ridiculous. and I'm really surprised that nobody even makes like replicas I know. to some degree. Yeah, right. Like, I don't know. I mean, trust me, if you went and got a leather vest with all that shit sewn on it, it's going to cost you. A lot of <laughs> yeah, money. custom. But dude, 
But I'll be honest with you. If I had somebody that could even make me one that just looks good, I'd consider framing it and hanging up in my house. It'd be fucking cool. Cause it's, yeah, it's a- that's just so fun. And it's, Dude, that's something that when people walked in your house and seen that, they'd be like, dude, what is this? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a conversation. Or they would just know. Like, dude, that's sick. And they'd be like, anybody that likes the movie would think that's the coolest fucking thing they've ever seen. So, uh, but again, that's the Warriors here on the movies that made us. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. And uh, it's time for our last commercial break of the show. So whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. The Jay is going to take us over to the majestic waterfall of goofs. Uh, for some goofs or goofs. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. Two guys with troubled past, disturbed minds, fighting inner demons who are succeeding expectations of what people thought they could overcome. Now they want to reveal it to the world and help others conquer theirs. For t-shirts, hats, and more, check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. This is Timothy James with the What's Real Podcast, welcoming you to Goose or Goose. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So, the Jay, what do we got this week on the Goof front? Oh, hey, Ed, like you said, the Jay is kind of beat up this week. So, getting up here to this freaking majestic waterfall took its toll on me, man. But like I said at the beginning of the show, your boy is still here. As they said in the great comedy classic, The Three Amigos. I'm still here, El Guapo. So the Jay's still standing, <laughs> hey, Ed. And here we are. Welcome to episode 117 of the What's Roll podcast and our hilarious segment that we close out every show, as is tradition. Goofs are goofs. Just to start things off, man, I don't know how you feel about Hillary Duff, but I think she's pretty goddamn hot. And I don't know if you caught this, but she's on the new cover oh, of Women's Health and she's butt naked and looks ridiculous in the magazine's annual body issue. Give me your take. Dude, I seen, I seen some dudes bring this up in the group that I'm in on Facebook. Like they posted the pictures and stuff. That's how I saw it. And like the first dudes, like I liked her when she was thick. Oh, uh, here, like, yeah. Welcome to social media world. Leave it to internet fucking troll people to yeah. basically be like she's not hot anymore. I'm like, dude, you're you haven't left the house in 13. Yeah, years like we said before, trying. if the person has a significant other, and no offense to anybody, but they probably look like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, and they're like, she's not good looking. Yeah. Like it's it's always some dude. But yeah, I was kind of surprised because I, dude, I have not seen or heard from her in what feels like a fucking lifetime. Yeah, it just popped up, and I just had to throw that at you, as we do to start off GRG. Next up, I know you saw this one, but I didn't realize until I read this. So the whole thing broke about comedian Dave Chappelle getting what they now refer to as Chris Rocked. And, yeah. and a dude came on the stage and like went after Chappelle, but he got hospitalized. But what I found out reading more because it said some of his friends helped. Some of his friends were Buster Rhymes, Jamie Foxx and freaking John Stewart. All got yeah, all got dude, digs on this dude and like broke his arm or something. Dude, it was funny because uh, I guess Chappelle was like talking to the crowd like when this stuff was happening. And he's like. One good thing that I love about California, if you ever get in any trouble whatsoever, you could expect Jamie Foxx and a cowboy hat to come and save you. Yeah. <laughs> cue, cue, the, cue the grandfather from Lost Boys. Like the great yeah, thing exactly. about California is Jamie Foxx is all ready to stomp your hair. But yeah, I was. But dude, the, the dude got fucked up. 
Okay. And dude, my understanding is this dude's 23 years old and he has some mental issues. And I don't remember for the life of me what it was, but he was, he said that he did it to try and raise awareness for something. Okay. And yeah, okay. Chappelle's fine. The dude got fucked up, whatever. Dude, then I read today and I want to know what you think about this. Dave Chappelle's pushing for felony charges on this guy. Okay. I didn't hear that. And I'm kind of like, you know, like you're really trying to ruin this dude's life. Like I'm not well, defending what he did. Here, here's the thing to, it, I mean, this is a big, it depends in my, on my take. Hey, cause I don't know enough about it. So I just have to disclose that and say it depends because there was another article I read where he had like a knife or something, but then I found out it might've been a fake knife and, and it's, it's going to depend on the size of his mental health issues. I mean, if the dude's pretty much schizophrenic or something, then I think, you know, I don't know Dave Chappelle. He seems like a reasonable person, all things considered, as far as famous celebrities go and that sort of thing. So you would think that if he finds out the dude, you know, has legitimate defined, you know, mental health diagnosis that he wouldn't press charges. But if if the dude is just full of shit, then that's kind of another thing too. And if like this weapon was real, like, I don't know. I mean, that's, again, it's, I, I say this term on the show all the time and it goes in with this. It's muddy waters for real. Well, I mean, I guess my thing is the DA decided not to push felony charges and Chappelle had his attorney say like, this is what Mr. Chappelle wants. And I'm kind of like, well, is that really your choice here? Like, you know, what well, I'm and saying? as we're, like, as we're talking about, he got his comeuppance. It looks like his arm was broken. His face was all fucked up. Destroyed. They have a picture of him on the, on the gurney. Yeah, it's it's a stupid thing, but at the same time, too, like, I guess we're just getting to that point now where, like, they're going to have to start making stages and shit so people can't easily get on. Yeah, that's the other thing. See, that's what happened. Some some people in in the uh, outset of, uh, you know, Will Smith's slap. We're kind of saying like, oh, people were blowing this out of proportion. Like he shouldn't have done that. But, you know, it's not going to start all these people just at all these comedy clubs. And it's not even a full two months later. And look what's happening. I think it did definitely open a can of worms. We called that one, too, when we were covering that. I was like, Will Smith opened a can of worms. and This is proof of it. Yeah, it's just, dude, since it seems like since 2020 and the whole pandemic that like humanity's just kind of like gone batshit and yeah we talked about that there was people levels. throwing shit on nba floors and spitting on people and like all these people running on fields more than Dude, the past there was a video that came out a couple weeks ago i don't even know if you saw this or not but it was during one of the playoff games in the nba there was a woman sitting in the yeah because she was from PETA. And she literally got fucking. Yeah, because the, the they knew she they over. knew she was there to c- cause shit. So the one person was like watching her. You could see it, and he, he just jumped and on there, her right away. And there was even another instance too that I'm not going to bring up specifically because I have a funny feeling you might. But you know, it's it's starting to happen a lot when it comes to you know just people don't know how to act. Like yeah, I yeah, there is there is a viral like, fight in here. Hey, yeah, it was a past tradition we haven't had in a while, so that's one that's coming up. You saw that one. Well, it's yeah, it's dude. It's the cops just are coming for you. Hey, me. Yeah, they're going past my house apparently as we speak. But yeah, it's just dude. It's really weird. Like with people, like I understand you have a cause and you want to bring attention to it and shit. But like, is getting tackled on a floor of an NBA game a really a good way of doing that? Oh, like, I, I know. you know what? I wasn't gonna bring that up. So good call. You're you okay. were so you could you could throw it at us. The the girl at the UFC. So there's another video that I sent to you where yeah. there's a girl who's at a UFC event and she's like, 
hey, this is like she says her name or whatever. And then she just runs to the fucking cage. And there's security dudes that stand on the podiums of the cage. And as soon as she got up there, she looked like she got thrown into another dimension. Yeah. And then you see her coming. I swear to God, they brought her back to her seat. Yeah, because it's the UFC. They're like, she got what she deserved. Yeah, it's like she didn't get hurt and she didn't do anything. So just go sit down and don't fucking do it again. We're going to break your legs. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. People are just fucking like, I'm sorry, but I'm not paying like stupid amounts of money to go to a sporting event. Like, I'm going to go run out on the field. Like, I'm there to watch the game. So we're, we're back to a segment on the Goose or Goose uh, that is tradition here. And I sent it to you. Hey, Ed, if you want to check, check your Facebook messenger real quick in case you oh, haven't caught it. So this is back to crazy animal stories where two male dolphins are seen in this picture with an anaconda snake in their mouths, two of them. And it states that two male dolphins were seen playing with an anaconda while sexually aroused in a perplexing encounter captured by researchers. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a, a marine biologist here, so I'm not going to act like I know that that's true for a fact. But, dude, I've I said this I don't know how many times in my life to you, and I'll keep saying it. But like, Mother Nature sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, dude, the, the out there in the like, shit sucks. Like, you don't if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're lucky, and you don't want to know what I'm talking about. But if you've ever seen like really good nature documentaries and shit, you know what I'm talking about. Mother Nature fucking sucks. Shout out. It's terror. It's like nightmare fuel. Shout out to our good friend, Jennifer Lynn Prabola, who said, dudes will tap anything, I swear. And before you come to cancel me, I'm not kink shaming dolphins. Wouldn't want to upset anyone on the internet, feelings and what have you. Pound sign, tide pods. So good job, Jen, there. That was hilarious. But yeah, two male dolphins sexually aroused while playing with an anaconda. Do what you will with that info here on GRG. Next up, hate you. Things are getting worse before they get better. As uh, I don't know if you saw this one. It's it's pretty brutal. Um, so we'll we'll see if we can get through it. Okay, because uh, this this right. one happened on Mother's Day, and they said Happy Mother's Day with this woman. But the uh, headline is a morgue worker arrested after giving birth to a dead man's baby. Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, well, really? welcome to the Midwest. Hate you, Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. A 26-year-old morgue worker was arrested this morning after a DNS DNA test revealed that her newborn child was the result of a necrophiliac intercourse with a man she was supposed to autopsy. Oh, how's this for? Well, holy shit! Okay, she was the actual fucking. Uh, yeah, she was like Doctor. What's his name from HBO? The Bodner. <laughs> yeah, like, but dude, there's a really fucked up movie. <laughs> And, and it's called Aftermath, and it's a short film, and it's basically about a dude who does this. And uh, yeah. D- but, like, I guess my first response is I was surprised it was a woman that did this. But, yeah, I don't, dude, like, I, since the pandemic, the whole world's completely lost its fucking mind. So let's just reiterate that for the third time on this fucking show. But, yeah, uh, this is kind of proof of that in, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, nothing, nothing much can be said. And, you know, for that story to break, um, you know, recently with us passing Mother's Day and it's saying Happy Mother's Day kind of says it all because, you know, you, you get older and you want to know about your past and your mom's probably not telling you this shit. And you kind of dig deep in the 2040s and you find out that you were the result of a necrophiliac act or however you would yeah, pronounce I mean, that. And may, maybe your mom's just pretty straightforward with things, but not that straightforward. Yeah, like so I wrote a corpse said, in 2022. 
No, she's like, yeah, I, I don't know a lot about your dad, but I can tell you he was a dead fuck. It's like, it might not <laughs> yeah. mean what you think. Yeah, he's so, a dead, your dad's such a deadbeat. <laughs> it's like, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, This one was. But then again. Yeah, go ahead. I have, I have a bunch of questions here too. And I'm just, for the sake of everyone's sanity, I'm not asking any of them. <laughs> yeah. Continue. <laughs> like that man's corpse, we're putting this to rest. Um, moving on. <laughs> I, I sent this one to your Twitter just in case you hadn't caught this one. This was our insane video, viral video of the week as, as we do when we get them. As a yo mama insult ignites an insane fight at poker game in L.A. Did you see this? They don't. Uh, no, but I'm like, you can't be fucking with people. I just see a dude wielding like a piece of furniture. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. An absolutely insane fight broke out at a card room in California this week, and it all appeared to start because a man dropped a yo mama insult on another man. The wild scene reportedly went down at Hustler Casino in L.A. after two guys got into a verbal argument at a poker table inside the venue. For unknown reasons, the video from the casino shows the two screaming at each other and escalating into a full-on fist fight when one of the men fired off a jab about the other man's mother in the oh my god this is this is the best thing i've ever seen okay did you watch the video yeah because they, they tase him at the end dude when he he's wielding the piece of furniture and then i was like why the hell did he just fall over and then i realized he, he got he tased got with the fucking taser <laughs> yeah <laughs> ridiculous but yeah check that out guys if uh, you're watching and interested yo mama insult casino fight um it is not known if anyone suffered significant injuries in the clash hate you yeah, I mean, the dude who got tased probably got nicely fucked up, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, from being I tased. Just don't, like, dude, again, it's who goes to a fucking, you know, like a casino, and they're like, oh, I'm going to say a joke and like, fight this dude. Yeah, like your mom, or it, your mom didn't play spades like I do. Like, what? Like, dude, I get it when people get into horribly violent encounters, for example, like when they're in prison, right? But, like, when you're at Disney World, or having fun with your family, or at dinner, or at a fucking casino. Like, aren't you in a good mood? Like, why should you go from like I'm fine to I'm gonna hit this dude over the head with a fucking stool? Yeah, that's what happens. I don't know, dudes. People do, again. So the world has gone completely fucking batshit since 2020 <laughs> and the pandemic. Just in case we haven't reiterated that again. And to wrap up, Goose or Goose 117 full circle as we kick things off with a nude Hillary Duff. We're ending things with a nude Britney Spears. Have you seen Britney Spears' latest nude antics, AEO? I have. Yeah. Uh, and I, dude, I'm not gonna lie, I was kind of surprised. Oh, dude. Not that she did it, but. Dude, she, hey, kudos to her, man. Yeah. She's keeping her shit together. She's she looks awesome. butt naked, covering her nipples with a heart over her uh, pelvic there area. Uh, I don't know why. Like, <laughs> we're like unfreaking. We're talking about corpse fucking, and then we're like editing ourselves with Britney Spears' vagina. But um, Britney Spears' latest round of nude folk <laughs> pics have folks squaring off, though. Hey, that's the thing about this. It's creating some controversy where people were starting to judge her, saying that she might be crazy and maybe that conservatorship that she got rid of uh they maybe jumped the gun on that if she's nuts but meanwhile most people hey. are saying more power to her like you said uh with matt bernstein here saying i swear people forget that britney was in prison of her father's design for 13 years she missed the years when we were all terrible at instagram and used those tacky in-app filters she's feeling herself let her be yeah if she wants to why the fuck not you know what i mean it's like dude <laughs> i don't know why this reminded me of this but and I know this is highly unusual here for goofs or goofs, but 
uh, I've been catching up and rewatching a lot of Joe Bob stuff, and he had a pretty good joke the other day, so I'm just going to throw it in here. So fucking guy gets on an airplane, and uh, next to him is the Pope. And the Pope's writing something. He's like, oh, I wonder what he's doing. So he sits down, and the Pope's like, excuse me, can I bother you for a second? He's like, sure. He's like, I'm doing this crossword puzzle, and I'm stuck on this one. He's like, I was wondering if you could help me. He's like, sure. You know, I'm happy to help if I can. He goes, what's a four-letter word for a woman? Ends in U-N-T. And he's like, well, I know the answer to this one, but I can't say that to the Pope. He's like, damn it, come up with something. Come up with something. Finally, he's like, got it. It's ant, A-U-N-T. And the Pope goes, ah, of course it is. Do you have an eraser I could borrow? <laughs> Ba-dump. Bomb. But that's a Joe Bob joke. I didn't make it up, but it just, I don't know why it popped in my head right there, but I had to. Oh, that's great. That and, it's a, and it's a great way to go off because that was it. Let's all leave with the image of a still pretty damn hot, pretty damn put together Britney Spears, butt naked with a heart emoji holding her boobs. All, all power to the toxic singer, Britney. And as, yeah, as I can't argue with that, as I say, as the J is quite obviously on fumes, if you're still listening, thank you. I love you. Cause the J is struggling from 17 fucking hour days straight nonstop. But I say to my brew Hammoth from another Momamoth between do- dolphins doing kinky, weird shit with anacondas, Buster rhymes, Jamie Foxx and John Stewart representing for Dave Chappelle a morgue worker that I don't want to bring up again. Britney Spears and Hillary Duff's amazing bodies in a crazy fight at a casino. Goofs are goofs. So that's about it for us this week on here on episode 117 of the show. If you guys are listening on iTunes, please feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps out the algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the program. Of course, you can listen each and every week on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and each and every week on churchillpictures.com. If you have something you'd like to add to the show, you can send us an email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, hear the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like two dolphins in an anaconda. But yeah, as we always got to do, the sign-off, shout-outs, and classic taglines of the What's Real podcast. First and foremost, got to shout-out our awesome, amazing producer and also... The film I talked about, the National Wrestling League from Churchill Picture, it's uh, our director, Cam, the wizard behind the boards. Keep doing what you do, Cam, from directing to producing podcasts. You're the man, and we love you for it, and we appreciate you being on our team. Thanks for what you do. To my brother, hate you. Thanks for spending another crazy-ass weekday night with me, man. Love hanging out with you. Love the world of the Dubar question mark. Always Steve McQueen in it with the great escape. As I say, leading the charge like a warrior of old. Stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that's about it for us this week. Of course, big shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts in the show. Uh, Also, can't wait to check out your directorial debut. Um, And as we know here on the show, and they're going to learn in the movie industry too, nobody beats the whiz. And of course, the J, Clang Clang Brother, another successful uh, defense of our podcast, Tag Team Championship of the World. I appreciate you, brother. I hope you know that each and every day. Thank you very much for everything that you do, man, because I mean that. So uh, that's it for us this week, guys. We'll see you here next week. So stay safe, stay healthy. And remember, guys, the Anaconda don't want none unless you got fins, hun. So we'll see you next week right here on the What's Real Podcast. 